the Urbano Monte map was released in 2017, I think. Don't quote me on that. But I remember it making headlines in 2017. Notice how this map wasn't discovered. It was released. So there's a huge difference there. It was impeccable timing, too, because the Flat Earth Movement was taking off, and they decided to throw this into our lap, kind of giving us, you know, little uh, little bonus there. And it, it makes me wonder what else they've got in their vault. I wanted to drop a link here so you guys can look at this. That was just a, a little JPEG I threw in there. But this map is so huge. And I, there we go. If you click onto this website, you can actually zoom in on this map. And I have spent hours and hours and hours pouring over this map over the last several years. It's a fascinating map. Now, Urbano Monte was born in 1544, died in 1613. The date of the map is supposedly it was completed in 1587. I want to point out really quickly, looking at this, that in order to make a map like this, they probably had to have flying contraptions. Some sort of primitive airplanes or balloons, even though balloons wouldn't come along for another, you know, 300 years or whatever. You don't you don't make a map like this and like get your walking shoes on and get a ruler and and, you know, go hiking across the continent and measure this stuff. I mean, maybe they were doing it with ships, but I think it has been shown over and over again that these maps in order to make a map like this, you needed a flying contraption. Other things to notice on this map is that you see Hyperborea right there dead center. And Hyperborea, amongst many other areas up there in the north, is green. It's not, it's not frosted over. It's not covered in snow. That's, that's really odd. If you look closely at Canada, at Siberia, it's all green. Now, there is a little bit right there. It is a little confusing that it says that the Canadian province, which my understanding is that Canada wouldn't become a province until about 1841. So that's that's a little odd, especially we're, since we're going back to the 1500s now. You also see a, a lot of what's called terra incognita uh, in the, the, the top corners there, which basically means that's unexplored land. So there was, at the time this map was made, Inland, what, they weren't exploring a lot in the north. Another thing to notice about this is that Antarctica is covered in a lush landscape. That's a little awkward. Even more awkward is the fact that Antarctica would not be discovered until about 1820. So when was this map made? 1587? So we've got about 250 years before Antarctica would officially be discovered. And here you have these map makers this urban Urbano Monte putting a huge ring around the Earth in the Southern Hemisphere. What I like about this Antarctica specifically is that, well, again, we need to point out the fact that it's very green and lush. Actually, if you look down there, you see uh, uh, crocodiles, you see lions, you see elephants, you see all sorts of very tropical creatures. And of course, science will tell us that Antarctica was once a lush tropical landscape. Well, that's interesting. But I also like about Antarctica, a couple things you'll notice is that it's not a solid ring. It's uh, There's a lot of canals in between. These are actually, you can call them continents or islands. I would call them, I guess, a bunch of continents. And also there's water on the other side of them. I actually think that those are not to scale. I think that they've kind of squished them down and that they would actually expand very much out. 
if you look in there, you're going to find, uh, like in the, the region of Armenia, you're going to find Noah's Ark. They plant that bad boy right down there. And it's interesting to note that Josephus talks about in his day that Noah's Ark was so well known, it was a pilgrimage site, and people would just go there and, um, and you know, worship there or whatever. So it was, you know, nowadays, they I don't know what happened to Noah's Ark. I don't know if it existed. I don't know about that petrified story they got. But... History history tells us from sources that it wasn't petrified, that it was an actual boat up on a mountain that people would go visit. And here they put it on the map. You're also going to find Jerusalem on here, and a multitude of Judean cities are accounted for. Now, that that begs all sorts of questions about, you know, what's what's going on there. Especially since I have looked into the possibility that uh, Judea or modern the modern state of Israel is not the historical land. But if anyone has questions on that, I can kind of give some of my theories on that as well. Does this prove Jerusalem is legit? In my opinion, no. I'll, I'll, I'll get into when I think that this map is actually made. We see on this map, so again, keep in mind, 1580s, we see on this map Spanish conquistadors telling us there's something true about their stories, that there were Spanish conquistadors going over there to South America, where you see them sailing. You see giants over there in South America, just like the, the conquistadors were claiming that there were. So that's interesting. So that's telling me that this map maker is actually taking attention, uh, uh, paying attention to some of these finer details of these accounts. But another awkward thing about this map is that there are mythological creatures galore. Like everywhere, you're seeing, you know, not just giants, you're seeing... Centaurs, you're seeing mermen, you're seeing dragons, you're seeing like all sorts of stuff. You're seeing like devil people. Um, and here's my theory on this map. I've had, I've thought about this for, you know, since it came out in 2017, put a lot of thought in this. And I believe that this map was made before the Millennial Kingdom. I'm going to drop in here uh, one of the big giveaways here. Here is the date uh, put onto the map. I, this is a photo, uh, a, a close-up photo taken of it, and you can clearly see it's not 1587. They tell you it's 1587, but it says I 587, telling us that this map was made in the year 587. So, according to my timeline that I'm looking at, again, this is pre-millennial kingdom because i don't think the millennial kingdom was ushered in until the 700s now that's going to confuse some of you but again i, I need to repeat this re over and over and over and over again that just because this says 587 does not mean this was 587 years after messiah all it means is is that rome at some point started counting the years and saying it was 587 years after messiah it could have been uh, 350 years after Messiah. I don't know. But again, this is this is fascinating because it tells us that a lot of these accounts in history are true, uh, like like the Spanish conquistadors, but uh, they, you know, the, the timeline has been jumbled. Some a theory I do have on this, and like again, I have no dog in, the, in this fight where Jerusalem truly is necessarily. Like I, I just want it to be where it's supposed to be. So maybe that really is Jerusalem there on the map. You're going to find a lot of cities in there, though, like uh, Paris. I, I, I really question if it was called that back then. 
I don't know. So sometimes I wonder if they did some work on this later on when it was in the vaults all these years. Really hard to say. Is this whole map a deception? But that being said, remember now that Jerusalem was completely destroyed in the year 70 AD, and the the Yahudim were cast out of the land. Now, they, they, they stayed there a little bit longer, according to official history, for another 50, 60, 70 years or whatever uh, after 70 AD, but they, they were completely removed out of the land. And I am completely content with the idea that there was a the, the people were deceived back then just like they are now. You know, a few hundred years later, you could have had people believing that really was. They could have gone and fought the Crusades there, thinking they were really fighting over Jerusalem. And meanwhile, you have these six sadistic elitists running the world, just like grinning at the fact that, you know, there's this mass slaughter over a city in the desert. That's not really it. You see what I'm saying? Now, I was going to, we have so much ground to cover tonight that I was going to spin off from this map and and start talking and showing you some of these mythological creatures in what we would call like medieval documents and and maps and and books and other things like that to show you how common i believe they really truly were that leading up to what we would call the millennial kingdom reset there were i i really i'm really leaning towards the fact that these creatures roam the earth i'm going to give i'll give you a couple of examples i don't have a lot of time to go through this but this comes from my collection of collecting images just of wild men. All right. Now, a, a wild man is a lot of people will tell you that they're like a Sasquatch. I don't agree with that. There, there's some similarities with wild men and Sasquatch, but these are literally wild men. They're like men that are really hairy and they live in the woods. Let's see if I can find a good starting uh, photo here. I don't want to put on a um, crazy one right away. Well, this is actually a good one to start with. So here we see a book of actually two wild men. Now, there's I found two classifications of wild men in these books. One is the green-haired people, and the other is the, the brown-haired people. They're all white-skinned, but the green-haired people seems seem to have a closer connection to what we know as the green man. And when I was in Europe, I was going all over just seeing the green man everywhere, including the wild man, but the green man was everywhere. This is a pretty haunting photo. You've probably seen this before because it's actually showing these wild men being persecuted and hunted down and thrown into the flames. And I don't know what he's doing with that one woman and why she's naked and not hairy and he's trying to grab her. And he seems like, if you look at his face, it's pretty heartbreaking what's going on. Like he knows. Here's another photo here or a picture of a wild man being hunted down. You could see the king and his knights coming up to him. Let's see. I'm just going to grab random photos here. This is interesting because you have these wild men, a whole tribe of them. And they're all they're all depicted with clubs. Like you rarely see them with anything else. They they have like long staffs in their hands or clubs and they're coming in to assault this castle and the people are shooting back with bows and arrows. So you could see that there was two classifications of people at this time, and they weren't really getting along. The primitives and the um, and the uh, shiny armor people. Let's see what do we got here. So here we have three wild men, and one is hunting a dragon, 
I think the other might be a unicorn. I don't always do unicorn, but then the other guy is killing a lion. Now, I'm not going to be going through all these photos. I have so many of these that I just want to really get the point across. This is interesting because now we see two wild women. And they <laughs> they usually do a job in these illustrations of showing that they did not have hairy breasts. They like to really, you know, make that point across. But yeah, or kneecaps. That is correct. Oh, here's a here's another here's a green uh, a green wild woman holding a baby. I don't know if that's her baby or not. She has a little doll in her hand there, which is a little strange. Uh, that's a possibility. Well, no, I think that's a that's not a costume. I I think that's a uh, pretty legit. Oh, here's a good one of a uh, a wild man defending his child as a knight is coming in to massacre the both of them. And it's really sad. Like there's so many here of like these people just getting massacred and they would put this in books. Here's another one. I don't have much commentary on this one, but that's kind of a cool um, illustration there. You would also see them on castles. So here's a, here's a wild man on a castle. Uh, we see them on like furniture pieces and decorations. Here's two wild men with dragons. And there they are again with their clubs. I'm sorting through so many photos here. There's one I'm trying to find. Oh, this one's kind of interesting. Here's a wild man fighting a dragon while his two children run. There he is clubbing them over the head. Wild man over an arch. Looks pretty old. Oh, this one's pretty harrowing. Another wild man. Looks like a giant. Um, looks pretty big. I mean... Sasquatch looking here and he's fighting a um, looks like he has a hat on though and he's fighting a knight and what I wanted to look for was this one where you had them like being paraded around in a circus type atmosphere I can't find it for the life of me thank you for letting me do my show and tell right now <laughs> uh, oh this one might work I don't know what's going on in this one but yeah you got these three uh, maidens here there's actually four, and they're like, there's a series of photos like this, and they're, I don't know, they're like watching them perform for them. Like they captured them, brought them in. And uh, so some really interesting stuff. Here is a bunch of wild men being hunted down, and they have, these actually have horns on their head. So that's a bit of a, a twist to the tail. That's the only one that I that I think I have where I see horns on their heads. And then you even see them making this into, um, that's, there's like a green uh, wild man there. You see them making them into these, uh, I guess that's a ceramic. Well, to answer your question, Mike, because I believe that these are a reality. Here's, the, here's another one being thrown in the flames. I mean, they're t it's, it's just interesting that they're, they're persecuting them. They're rounding them up. They're capturing them. And there's also, I don't know if this is propaganda or not, but we also see images of them. Oh, well, before I get to that, we also see wild men with um, pictures of unicorns like this. But this actually reminds me of where the wild things are, if you can think of the book. It looks just like the same illustrations, but there's a bunch of wild men in the trees there. Um, obviously, they lived in the woods. Here is, oh, this is really sad. Here's a wild man trying to abduct a 
fair maiden who is trying to hug a tree so as not to be taken. And it doesn't end so well for him because... Actually, this is uh, a, another maiden here. He, uh, Knight comes in and stabs him, kills him. You see the blood coming out. Um, anyways, this is some of the bizarre stuff of what we see all throughout what they say is the Middle Ages. And again, I think this is probably the 400s, the 500s. And and I, I'm becoming more and more convinced that these people were real, that we, there were you know centaurs, there were mer people kind of like what we see in the book of jubilees where flesh was being um, uh, mixed together and you had all these different species that were living in the wilds and people were fascinated by them and they would go and hunt them down so for those of you who were in our diaspora of yasharel group on sabbath this last sabbath was one of the most uh, the biggest bombs that were dropped probably any time i was on a live broadcast and Michael and Rob and I were on the Hebrew Gospel of John, chapter 19. We've got two chapters left to get through. And as Michael, Rob, and I are giving our commentary and we're, we're talking through it, we're reading from the, the, the Hebrew, uh, I guess what you call the Targum, the English Targum of the Hebrew. We're not actually reading the Hebrew. We're reading through what the translators have put out there. And Ronit is reading in the, straight from the Hebrew document. And she, um, after we're done talking, she comes on and she tells us that it doesn't really say that the soldiers uh, crucified Messiah, the Roman soldiers. It actually doesn't say that. And for whatever reason, the translators, uh, they decided to leave that out and they decided to put soldiers. It actually really says the Pharisees. Every single time in the Gospel of John where it talks about the soldiers whipping Yahusha or uh, leading him up to Golgotha, uh, um, you know, hang, stringing him up, hanging him up, uh, putting a you know spear into his side, whatever. Every single time, it's the Pharisees, the people dividing his garments. It was the Pharisees, and that was like a jaw-dropping moment for everybody. And most of the people who responded, there, well, I think everyone who responded were like, "That makes sense." Like it really does. It never made sense to me why Pontius Pilate would say, I'm washing my hands of this whole affair, and then he still crucifies him. Like, that doesn't really, that's always been a bit of a, uh, kind of a, a leap of, I don't, I don't want to call it a leap of logic, but it, it never really made sense, but now it does. So we're going to read through this, and what I asked Ronit to do to check up is to read all four Gospels in the crucifixion account and let me know if they're translated the same way. She responded and said, it is. That the translators, for whatever reason, had an agenda to, to leave that out and make it look like the Romans crucified Messiah, when in fact it was the Yahudim all along the Pharisees. I dropped this in. You guys can pull it up and read it. And it's just a two-page um, notes on the Gospel of John. I don't think she goes through the um, oh, yeah. So she goes through Matthew as well here, it looks like. So let's look at this. She shows the three letters there. She says, this root in Hebrew, depending on punctuation and context, may mean the following. It could mean horseman, parash, or to interpret, interpretation, interpreter, parshan, to retire, to leave in the middle of a game, competition, etc., parash, uh, to stretch out as in stretch your wings and fly, po race, 
a group of chapters, uh, Haftorah, Parashe, Excrement, which you guys can see that, uh, Peresh, Loner Hermit, Recluse, Poresh, and then to dif uh, differentiate oneself or set oneself apart from the general population. This is the root and meaning to the term Pharisees, Perushim, uh, for Pharisees. Note regarding the verses below. Pay attention to square brackets and bolded words. They denote my comments, clarifications, different translation, or my call for special attention. So this is the book of Yochanan, or John, the Hebrew manuscript. This comes from chapter 19, and you see here verses 2, 23, 24, 32, and 34. So verse 2 says, so every single instance where they insert soldier, like what we think of a Roman soldier in here, it doesn't say that. It says verse 2, and the Pharisees, Peroshim, prepared a crown of thorns and put it on the head of Yeshua and covered him with a scarlet garment and came unto him and said to him, verse 23, then the Pharisees, Peroshim, when they had hanged him up, and again, it, 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 we were discussing how it doesn't really give the, the idea of what we think of him being up on a cross. It was more like they, they hung him. Like they formed a posse and hung them. When they had hanged them up, took the garments and divided them in four parts for everyone his part. So here we see the Pharisees dividing his garment, not the Roman soldiers. Verse 24 says, Therefore they said among themselves, Let us not tear it, but let us cast lots over it. Whose it will be, in order that the scripture could be fulfilled, which says, They divided my clothes among themselves and cast lots on my garment. Therefore the Pharisees, Perushim, did these things. Verse 32, so the Pharisees, Perushim, came out, came and cut off the thighs of those who were hang, hanged up with Yeshua. And that's a really strange uh, phrasing, like cutting off thighs. I don't know if they were literally cutting off the thighs. I, I, I don't even know what to make of that. But that's, that's a very different picture than what we're uh, typically shown. But uh, Verse 34, but one of the Pharisees took a spear lance and cut his Yeshua's thigh open. The other, the other thing here is, is warp and wolf. So let's see what she has to say on that. That's what we would, we were discussing that because every instance where you would see a cross or a cross beam, it talks about the warp and wolf. Verses 15, 17, 18, and 19. Regarding the term, the, the term, uh, shti ve a rave. So it's Got it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and the, it, I still couldn't pronounce that if I tried. In the translation, it appears as warp and wolf. This term refers to crossing of vertical lines with horizontal lines, such as when you weave a fabric. In my opinion, she says, the biblical vocabulary at the time did not have a proper term for cross, and therefore the writer used the term. And, uh, and she, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and I wanted to say that it's in all uh, in all four books they are using Shtiva Erev. So that's how they call the cross. They just didn't have a word for cross or crucify. So then they used hang, the word hang, and they used the Shtiva Erev to, to refer to the cross. That's interesting because in the in the Greek they would have a word for crucify, right? Yes. I would, yeah, but not in I'm the Hebrew. Still, yeah, but in Hebrew, they didn't have it in the vocabulary. All right, well, let's see what she put here for the book of Matthew, Hebrew manuscript, literal translation. 
verse 22. And Pilate said, Then what must I do with Yeshua, who is called Mashiach? And they all, the priests, the elders, and the rest of the Yahudim said, Let him be placed on the cross. They said warp and wolf, as uh, Ronit has just explained. Verse 23. So Pilate said to them, And what evil did he do? But again they cried, Crucify him. Uh, they In the text they said, they cried, put him on the warp and wolf. So all the people answered, let his blood be upon us and upon our sons. And then he released Bar Evan and delivered Yeshua to them, beaten to crucify him. Now Pilate's slave servants took Yeshua to the great co- uh, courthouse of the Sanhedrin, and the people Yahudim gathered around, and they stripped him and covered him with a red garment. And they set a crown of thorns upon his head. Now, this is the Yahudim who does this, right? Not the Romans. And a cane in the right hand, and they said a blessing upon him, saying, May Yahuwah save you, king of the Yahudim, while spitting on him and taking the cane and beating his head with it. Again, like we, we're always, we always see the Romans like mocking him as they're, as they're torturing him, but it's, it's, it's even worse. And afterwards, when they had made much mockery out of him, they stripped him of the garment and clothed him with his clothes and led him away to hang him up. Now, as they walked through the city, they found a officer-ranked soldier whose name was Simon. Shimon. That's interesting. That I didn't realize he was a um, a soldier. So it's almost like reversed. That's interesting. Yeah, and and I I had to kind of like that word was weird, but the root of the word is actually an officer in the military. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So everything is reversed on this. And they forced him to carry the cross, verse 33. And they came to that place, which is called Golgotha, that is Calvary Mountain. And they gave him wine mixed with wormwood, uh, Artemisia. Um, yeah, remember we talked about it? That's the La'ana, that's the Arab, the bitter Arab. So that's what they put in the wine. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and that, wow, that, that goes with the... That goes with yeah. the whole discussion there of the uh, yeah. the test of yeah. adultery, doesn't it? Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. They gave him they wine mixed with wormwood to drink, but when he tasted it, he did not want to drink it. Once they crucified him, hanged him up, they cast lots for his clothes and divided his clothes amongst themselves in order that the prophecy would be fulfilled, which says they divided my clothes among them and cast a lot over my garment. And they sat staring at him, and they placed a writing above his head. This is Yeshua, the king of the Yahudim. Then they hanged up two thieves with him, one to the right side and one to the left side. And passerby would stop by and uh, curse him, shaking their heads, saying, are, are you he who says that you will destroy the holy temple and then within three days rebuild it? Save yourself if you are the son of Eloha. Eloha. Come down from the cross, or the warp and wolf. And like these words, the priests and scribes and sages and all the elders spoke unto him, mocking him, and saying, He saves others, but he is not able to save himself. If you are king of Yasharel, come down from the cross, that we may see it and believe you. He is saved in Elm. Who will save him if he wants to? For he said, I am the son of Eloha. So there you guys go. Um, I just wanted to read that because I thought that was... Uh, just, uh, it was real- Go ahead. I just wanted to say one thing that striked me is verse 27. Um, they, it says that they took him to Beta Dina Gadol, which is basically the Sanhedrin. So, uh, I mean, I, 
in my opinion, you don't take someone to the, just to do a guided tour to the sun and train. If they took him there, they probably gave him a trial in the sun and train. That's something that escaped a lot of uh, translations, I think. But that's what it is. Beta Dina Gadol is the great, basically it's the name of the sun head train. So you're saying that he was put on an additional trial there with the Sanhedrin? In my opinion, yes. That's well, my you know, opinion. And what's interesting, I think it's according to the Talmud, that they said that the last trial was held there 40 years before the destruction and of the wow. temple. And the, the reason being is that the earthquake destroyed the, um, that where the Sanhedrin met. The, the earthquake that coincided with Yahusha's death. And because of that, they had to meet in the marketplace for the following generation. They'd never yeah. met in there again. So basically, the last trial that the Sanhedrin ever gave was, was when for Yahusha. Yeah. That's what I believe. And it, it notice how no one paid attention to it. When I read that verse, I went like, better than a Gadot. That's the Sanhedrin. So they took him there. They took him there. That means they gave him a trial. And then they did all of the, whatever they did afterward. They found him guilty and then they executed him. Well, there it is. So you guys can all have that PDF and kind of look it over. And we'll be finishing, I think, the Gospel of John, uh, chapters 20 and 21 this Sabbath. We're going to take a break in Revelation. But um, that, that, again, that was a big game changer. So thank you, Roni, for all that work you did. Okay, well, let's go ahead and move on. I dropped uh, my tonight's reading material in there. It's called The Seven Firmaments of Heaven. Now, I will warn everybody, I am quoting from a lot of scripture that most people have never read before. I'm talking like 3rd Baruch, I'm talking 2nd Enoch, I'm talking the Ascension of Isaiah. So everybody, you know, one of the things I, I, I read comments about myself on the internet, and people are like, that Noel guy, he, he's got great research, but take everything he says with a grain of salt. Well, okay, that, that, that should be kind of a given, because all I'm doing is I'm taking these books and I'm putting them together, and I'm presenting them to you. You guys are free to look at these books and decide whether you think that they're scripture or not. I'm not here to tell you whether they are or not, but I have found that reading these books have given me a lot of wisdom, I, I believe. There's a lot of, or I should say there's a lot of wisdom to be found in them in ways I never imagined before I read them. Now, within the Flat Earth Movement, we all know about this idea that there is a solid firmament over us. But I'm going to be taking this beyond that tonight and showing that within these books of scripture, that there was a belief that there were seven firmaments. And in each of these seven firmaments, there was a completely different world in between. So you can think about it like a, like a skyscraper. If, if the Most High, Yahuwah the Most High Elohim is on the top floor of the penthouse, we're way down on the the ground floor, and then of course you go into the basement. You get down into Sheol and that kind of stuff. But there's there's several floors between us and the Most High. So let's open it up and start reading. Introduction: Yahuwah of the Worlds. Apologies if you haven't any clue what the firmament is. I certainly don't want to assume everybody reading my work is intimately aware of it. 
But know this, I won't be laying the groundwork here. Contrarily, a pre-knowledge of the firmament, or rakia in Hebrew, is the foundation by which construction of cosmology will continue. In brief, though, making mention of the firmament is just another way of saying our world is flat and motionless, and that we live in an in an enclosed realm. NASA tells us there's this place called space and that it passes on into infinity, whereas scripture repeatedly reminds the reader how heaven physically rests upon the firmament, which is in and of itself solid and impassable. Not even the angels can get past the guard gate without the updated access code. The rest of you have probably done your research on the vaulted dome above our heads, which is why it doesn't need repeating here. But what if I told you that's only the first of several of them? There is more, many more, with entire worlds in between. Does that excite you? I took laps up and down the beach this morning just thinking about it. I guess you could say I'm getting in shape, anticipating my eventual journey into the final frontier. Now that I'm out of breath, I feel it best to take up the pen and guide you through the thought process. By the way, the, the, the beach mentioned there is I actually started writing this last November when I was on the beach. So it's taken me like four months to finish this thing. And no, I cannot prove to you that there are several more worlds above our own. My own observations reveal to me that the firmament directly above us is a legitimate reality. But beyond that, I make no claims of being a prophet nor ascending through the heavens to speak with Yahuwah and having the angels reveal to me its mysteries. Luckily for us, there are others who have. Be before we go on a tour of the heavens, though, let's look at some passages whereas the writer of scripture looked skyward from the earth and simply knew. This comes from Numbers 23.19 in the Targum. The word of the living Elohim is not as the words of men for Yahuwah, the ruler of all worlds is the unchangeable, but man speaks and denies. Neither are his works like the works of the children of flesh, who consult and then repent them of what they had decreed. But when Yahuwah of all worlds hath said, I will multiply this people as the stars of the heavens, and will give them to possess the land of the Canaanites, is he not able to perform what he hath spoken? And what he hath said, can he not confirm it? Moshe knew that Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yashrael, ruled a plurality of worlds without ever having physically visited some of them. He, in fact, uh, he is in fact ruler of all worlds. I guess we can conclude then that Yahuwah is not a demurge nor lower Elohim ruling a back alley realm and a greater pantheon of creators. Elsewhere, elsewhere, we do read that Moshe saw glimpses of the heavens in a vision, but that's beside the point. As Yahuwah's testimony concerning himself and his creation was, a, was enough for him. Notice how it is the word of Elohim being referenced here. Yahusha is unchanging. Contrarily, men speak and change their preferences for him all the time, which is the same thing as saying man speaks and denies. If you need an example of denial, then I've come prepared with one. Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yasharel, is unchanging. Therefore, his word would not tell us to obey his Torah one moment and then break it the next, which just so happens to be exactly what Christians and Darby deputies are going around doing. I've got another example, a good one, and it relies heavily upon the world's idea, but we'll wait until after the following verse. 
This comes from Deuteronomy 32.4 from the Jerusalem Targum. Moshe the prophet said, When I ascended the mountain of Sinai, I beheld Yahuwah of all the worlds. Yahuwah, dividing the day into four portions, three hours employed in the law, three hours with judgment, three hours in the care of the world, three hours uniting the marriage yoke of the husband to the wife. For it is written, The mighty one whose works are perfect, for all his ways are judgment, faithful Elohim and true. Falsehood is not before him. He is just and upright in judgment. Here Moshe is telling us that the Creator's works are perfect, and that falsehood is nowhere to be found before him, but only after having already reminded us that he had beheld Yahuwah of all the worlds. Plural. From that I can deduce that there are indeed worlds beyond our own, and that they were a perfect work. And no, calling other solar systems or planets worlds is not at all what is being described here. As we have already seen, Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yashorel, is unchanging. Therefore, he did not create a flat and motionless plane underneath the sort of firmament which the psalmist might declare his handiwork, only to become convinced that he should have gone the Copernican route based upon the natural observations of Isaac Newton and Kepler. That may be how history works, but not the ultimate reality of his story, which everyone seems keen on denying. The tour I am about to take you on today is far greater than what any NASA fanboy will demand. By now, my serial reader should be made well aware that Scripture has taught me one of two things. Either the writers of Scripture didn't have a clue what they were talking about and, excuse my French, were dishing out ham sandwiches, you know, making up bologna as they went, or the official narrative doesn't add up quite right. Seeing as how the word of Yahuwah has proven his testimony true for this writer, I choose the later. You are free to make up your own mind on the matter. The intel community has gone out of their way to turn the lights off and screw everything up with cartoons and CG imaging. But from here on out, we will pay them no mind. The menorah does indeed find its way into dark places. Let's keep reading. This one comes to us by way of a major prophet. Isaiah 6.5 in the Targum says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I have sinned, for I am guilty, for I am a guilty man to reprove, and I will dwell in the midst of a people polluted with sin. For mine eyes have seen the glory of the Shekinah of the King of the Worlds, Yahuwah Sava'oth. And finally, one more in Ecclesiastes 8.3. And in the time of the anger of Yahuwah, do not cease to pray before him, tremble before him, go and pray and seek mercy before him, or from him. Because thou canst not stand in an evil matter, for Yahuwah of all worlds, Yahuwah will do what he pleases. There are dozens of passages in the Aramaic Targum describing Yahuwah in such terms, that he is creator and king of all worlds beyond our own. And as you can clearly see, I pulled two declarations from Torah and two more from the prophets and wisdom literature, just to make that point. We may be the only earth wherein the souls of mortal men dwell, but we are not the only world. Part 1. The firmament, the waters above, and the first heaven. Again, my assumption is that you're already acquainted with Hebrew cosmology. If not, then you should be formally introduced to the provided picture. The one position directly above part 1, the first heaven. That's what our realm looks like according to scripture. Earth isn't even a planet. It's simply the land that appeared out of the water on day three. Even this illustration managed to get, manages to get a thing or two wrong, though. They all do. What I don't like about them is that they come across as though the sun and the stars are accessible, 
that the, the moon might be landed upon when in fact they cannot. But no time to nitpick. None of these illustrations bother to describe what is beyond the firmament, and we have much ground to cover. You are about to find out how truly spectacular the heavens are. If you haven't noticed already, we are already making our ascent towards the windows of heaven. Our first stop, albeit a brief one, is in the ethereal realm. That's the space directly below the ceiling of our firmament. You probably wondered what NASA is doing up there all the time if the final frontier is filmed in a Hollywood basement. I have too. And then one day I stumbled upon this passage in the ascension of Yeshiahu, that's Isaiah. I probably would have fallen out of my seat had I not been reading in bed. Because in two brief sentences, the prophet explains everything. So this comes from the ascension of Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. And we ascended to the firmament, I and he. And there I saw Samael and his host. And there was great fighting therein, and the angels of Satan were envying one another. And as above, so on the earth also. For the likeness of that which is in the firmament is here on the earth. We have been given a familiar axiom, blink and you'll miss it, as above, so below. Yeshiahu has just taken a jab at the secret societies running our flat, motionless realm, and in doing so, revealed dirty little secrets. Simply put, there is chaos upon the earth because the neophyte conforms to the likeness of his master. That's all by design. Order out of chaos is the recipe. The Elohim and Ruachs ruling from the ether cannot accept Yahushua's shalom and so must attempt to wrangle the order they desire out of rebellion, which is the same, as saying, same thing as saying they are bringing chaos to the Torah of Yahuwah. It's why the human slaves of this world are forced to navigate through a daily gauntlet of intel psyops, hoaxes, and other psychodramatic exercises. The performance witchcraft is, the performance witchcraft is intended to mold each willing participant into the image of the beast. Somebody is willi uh, willing simply by giving their consent to be lied to. The belief in their operation is where the magic does its work. I have devoted an entire writing career to expanding further upon this and fleshing these details out into practical examples, but some things deserve repeating. Even after completing his round trip through the heavens, Yeshayahu returned to the ethereal realm below the firmament and beheld the same activity unfolding. He says, and again he descended into the firmament, where dwelleth the ruler of this world, and he gave the password to those on the left, and his form was like theirs. And they did not praise him there. But they were envying one another and fighting, for here there is a power of evil and envying about trifles. The Ascension of Isaiah 10.29 The context is, Yeshayahu had earlier identified the leader of the angelic host as Samael. That's the same entity whom we all know as Satan, which is why, after spotting him twice, he calls Samael the ruler of this world. The infighting among them is due to their envying the beauty, wealth of influence, and the dominion to be found in one another, or as Yeshayahu put it, a power of evil. They have taken chaos to the law of heaven in hopes of bringing order, but only in a dog-eat-dog -dog sort of scenario. A second witness can be found in Shaul. We read, this comes from Ephesians 2.2, 2. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the ruach that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The as above, so below 
connection is once again made for us when fingering the prince of the power of the air. Walking according to the course of this world is the same thing as saying we live on a spinning, wobbling ball hurtling through a vacuum of space. The intel community wants us to believe we live on a planet because that would then imply, in Hebrew cosmological terms, that we are a wandering star. A star can only wander if it first breaks off from its natural course, as prescribed by the law of Yahusha or Yahuwah. He or she or they would then be workers of disobedience. Our slave masters want us to believe we inhabit a wandering star so that we might behave as one accordingly. Learn from the best, I guess. The spirit of lawlessness is everywhere. Not so in the first heaven. Evil does not, or I should say, evil does have a presence there, as we shall soon see, but not in any manner which has already been described. In the higher worlds, lawlessness only exists in so much that some crimes deserve imprisonment. Therefore, Yeshayahu needed to explain the obvious. Yahuwah scheduled an entire second day of creation in which he exclusively built the firmament because he desired to keep certain negative influences out of his kingdom. Yeshayahu doesn't spend much time in the ether, and I don't blame him. NASA fanboys and science fiction fans want to spend all their hours there dreaming about the possibilities, but you and I know why now. The Copernicans have done a thorough job at plowing down Yahuwah's real estate with cartoon imagery so that our inheritance might be hidden. Those of us who have set our hearts and minds upon things above will agree. Much better things can be found ahead. All right, so this comes from the Ascension of Isaiah 7, 13 through 17. And afterwards, he caused me to ascend to that which is above the firmament, which is the first heaven. And there I saw a throne in the midst, and on his right and on his left were angels. And the angels on the left were not like unto the angels who stood on the right. But those who stood on the right had the greater glory. And they all praised with one voice. And there was a throne in the midst. And those who were on the left gave praise after them. But their voice was not such as the voice of those on the right, nor their praise like the praise of those. And I asked the angel who conducted me, and I said unto him, To whom is this praise sent? And he said unto me, It is sent to the praise of him who sits in the seventh heaven, to him who rests in the holy world, and to his beloved, whence I have been sent to thee. Tither is it sent. We have just been given our first and only qualifier for living as a freed ruach in the heavenly realms, and that is to direct our praise towards the ruler of worlds in the seventh heaven, to our father Yahuwah, but also his beloved son of the Most High Elohim. That's not something which Samael and his angels inhabiting the ethereal realm are accustomed to. Humanity has therefore been placed into two camps, as the age-old axiom goes. How we live our lives will decide who our Father is. Another theme which will be repeated in each succeeding heaven has also been introduced. The angels to the left of the throne appear to be ambassadors for the world below, whereas the angels on the right seemingly define the glories of their present heaven. Though it doesn't outright say so here, there is an angel or an Elohim seated upon the throne who represents the splendors of the next heaven above them. In this way, each heavenly world follows a chain of command while becoming more glorious than the last. So hopefully that made sense to everybody. There's angels on the left, the right, um, the reason why the angels on the right are more glorious than the ones on the left is because they represent the angels of that heaven, and the one on the throne is more glorious than everyone in that heaven because he represents the, the glories above. Kind of interesting way to look at it.
So far, we have only been following the descriptions laid out for us by Yeshayahu, but there are others. Another prophet who made the climb was Baruch. His account of the same heaven goes as follows. So this comes from 3rd Baruch. And he took me and led me where the firmament has been set fast, and where there was a river which no one can cross, nor any strange breeze of all those which Elohim created. And he took me and led me to the first heaven and showed me a door of great size. And he said to me, let us enter through it. And we entered as though born on wings, a distance of about 30 days journey. And he showed me within the heaven a plain. And there were men dwelling thereon with the faces of oxen and the horns of stags and the feet of goats and the haunches of lambs. And I, Baruch, asked the angel, make known to me, I pray thee, what is the thickness of the heaven in which we journey? Or what is its extent? Or what is the plain? In order that I, that I may also tell the sons of men. And the angel whose name is Famiel, or Faniel, said to me, and we've encountered this angel before, interesting. This is the, uh, uh, the protector of, um, of repentance or penitence. He said to me, This door which thou seest is the door of heaven, and as great as is the distance from earth to heaven, so great also is its thickness. And again, as great as is the distance from north to south, so great is the length of the plain which thou didst see. And again, the angel of the power said to me, Come, and I will show thee greater mysteries. But I said, I pray thee, show me what are those men. And he said to me, These are they who built the tower of strife against Elohim, and Yahuwah banished them. There are... The, uh, there are the prisoners I was earlier telling you about. Rather ironic how some of the very souls who aided Nimrod in building a tower to heaven were imprisoned in the very realm they had hoped to take captive. Their transformation into animal creatures is at least keeping in line with the Yasher narrative, which claims a third of Babel's builders became like apes and elephants. The river, which no one is capable of crossing, is the waters above the firmament. Its thickness, we are told, is a measurement comparable with the distance between the firmament and the earth and is only capable of being traveled through a doorway. We might just as capably call this a portal. From what I have so far found, the waters directly above the first firmament is the only ocean which separates any layer of heaven. Enoch goes so far as to classify the two oceans above and below us in sexes of male and female. He says in Enoch chapter 54, In those days shall punishment go forth from Yahuwah, Sevaoth, and the receptacles of water which are above the heavens shall be opened, and the fountains likewise, which are under the heavens and under the earth. All the waters which are in the heavens and above them shall be mixed together. The water which is above heaven shall be the male, and the water which is under the earth shall be the female. And all shall be destroyed who dwell upon the earth and who dwell under the extremities of heaven. What is first and foremost being described here is Noah's flood. That much is straightforward enough. Unless you're already acquainted with Hebrew cosmology, then you're, you've probably never put the two and two together. That the windows in heaven which opened is not speaking of the clouds, but the firmament. Even if that's old news, though, how many of us formally understood that the male and female waters were separated with the creation of the firmament? Those two sexes would, would not come together again until Noah's flood. That's some seriously sensual house cleaning right there. Am I right? Oh, one more thing before exploring the first heaven any further. 
Will it surprise you to learn that the firmament is Ruach? Yeah, well, she is. We live in a conscious creation, but that's a discussion for another time. The firmament is simply a part of it. For a greater context, you will have to read my paper, The Earth is a Womb. And so if creation is conscious, it only makes sense that she would be too. It's all in keeping true to the Earth being a womb theme. It's true, all of it. Also, the Egyptians had it right, but only partially right. The Elohim of Egypt withheld the thing or two from their neophytes, particularly their refusal to instruct Yahuwah's Torah. Also, their mystery rites, by which eternal life might be acquired through mummification and other uh, ceremonies, originate with the tree of knowledge of good and evil and not the tree of life. But anyways, in Egyptian mythology, the firmament is depicted as a divine being called Nut or Nuet. I've included an illustration of Nut for your convenience. Pay careful attention to the fact that the naked goddess is blue-toned and covered in stars. That's because Nut's assignment is to divide the waters from, up, from below and above and keep us all from drowning. I'm also convinced that what we're looking at is far more geographically accurate than science, and unfortunately more anatomically correct than the illustration already shown with Hebrew cosmology, as the luminaries may very well be in the water. Well, I've been looking for a reference to the firmament having a ruach, and here it is. Uh, second Baruch 21 says, O you that have made the earth, hear me that have fixed the expanse, the firmament. Uh, the sephir always takes out firmament and makes expanse. It drives me crazy. By your word, and have made firm the height of the heaven by the ruach, that have called you from the beginning of the world that which did not yet exist, and they obey you. Not impressed? Hang in there then, because... If I'm guilty of anything, it's not overhyping this. The Sefer removes the word firmament, rakia in Hebrew, in favor of the far less informative expanse. Point being, the translators go out of their way to hide the flat earth. Bummer. Still not um, irredeemable as translations go. The same passage also capitalizes Ruach, as if to imply the Ruach HaKadosh made firm the height of heaven. Must be a family affair then seeing as how the expanse has already been fixed by Yahusha the Son, a.k.a. the Word. Not that I take issue with that. Perhaps the firmament really was a mother and son project. Baruch, Second Baruch simply isn't making that claim, though. The problem to my theory on first glance is that the firmament looks as though it was never granted a lowercase ruach. But then read it again. It says the world which did not yet exist was called from the beginning and they obey you. Who obeys? Is it simply saying the word of Yahuwah and the Ruach HaKadosh obeys Yahuwah? Are these two the, the they? I would argue that the lowercase Ruach of the firmament is the one being obedient, among the other Ruachs of creation, of course, and not the Ruach HaKadosh, as she was instructed to make firm in the height of heaven so that the word's commands might be seen through. Just to be certain that I'm not uh, an illiterate, I found a second, a second witness. This comes from 2nd Ezra, and it says, Upon the second day, you made the Ruach of the firmament and commanded it to part asunder and to make a division betwixt, uh, between the waters that the one part might go up and the other remain beneath. Ah, that's better. Now everything is suddenly clear. It says the Ruach of the firmament was commanded to part asunder. Who commanded her to part asunder? 
Second Baruch 21.4 tells us the word of Yahuwah. So Yahusha was commanding the Ruach HaKadosh, his mother? I thought he was submissive to her. He is. That's a problem then. Let's read 2 Baruch 21.4 and 2 Ezra 6.41 again, side by side, just to untangle this mess we find ourselves in. So one you can see here comes from the Sefer. Oh, uh, they're both from the Sefer, but 2 Baruch and 2 Ezra. Um, o you that have made the earth, hear me that have fixed the expanse firmament by your word, and have made firm the height of the heaven by the Ruach, that have called from the beginning of the world that which did not yet exist, and they obey you. Again, in Second Estras, upon the second day, you made the Ruach of the firmament and commanded it to part asunder and to make a division between the waters that, that the one part might go up and the other remain beneath. Crisis resolved. You see, the Sefer doesn't capitalize Ruach in Second Estras, as it would then appear as though the Ruach HaKadosh was created on the second day. Insinuating as much would be ridiculous, as we know the Ruach HaKadosh was hovering over the waters an entire day before the Ruach of the firmament was created to separate the waters. Therefore, the better understanding is that Ruach should, be, should indeed not be confused with the Father's set-apart Ruach. We can even deduce that the word of Yahuwah commanded it, the Ruach, not his mother, to make a division between the waters above and below. The firmament is Ruach. Amazing how we have barely yet stepped foot into the first heaven, and already we've learned so much. Moving forward, who knows what we will discover? Another text which speaks about the first heaven, just beyond the firmament, is Second Enoch and reads, It came to pass when Enoch had told his sons that the angels took him on to their wings and bore him up onto the first heaven and placed him on the clouds. And there I looked, and again I looked higher and saw the, the ether. And they placed me on the first heaven and showed me a very great sea, greater than the earthly sea. Pause. The narrative is already somewhat wonky. At first glance, it appears as though Enoch is saying the clouds above us constitute the boundaries of first heaven, which would be a problem to everything else we've so far read if the ground floor of heaven is the firmament. After being placed upon the clouds, he then looks higher to the ether, which tells us he is still below the firmament. Hmm. But then notice how he's afterwards placed upon the first heaven and shown a great sea, greater than the earthly sea. Hadn't he already been placed on the first heaven? That tells us there are two first heavens being described. Clearly, the second he uh, first heaven cannot be the first, as he now finds himself standing over the waters above. The sea in, in that first heaven is greater than the earthly sea. Continuing. They brought before my face the elders and rulers of the stellar orders and showed me 200 angels who rule the stars and their services to the heavens and fly with their wings and come around all those who sail. And here I looked down and saw the treasure houses of the snow and the angels who keep their terrible storehouses and the clouds whence they come out and into which they go. They showed me the treasure house of the dew, like oil of the olive and the appearance of its form as of all the flowers of the earth. Further, many angels guarding the treasure houses of these things, and how they are made to shut and open. Second Enoch chapters 4 through 6. According to Enoch, the first heaven is a world which directly corresponds with the ethereal realm directly below the firmament, the other first heaven. It's why the 200 
angels who ruled the stars could be found there. Familiar number. How many watchers were there again? Oh, that's right, 200. You figure they must have been replaced after being demoted. Perhaps we know now why the angel set him upon the clouds before venturing onwards. Because he was about to be given a tour of their treasure house of snow and the dew which came and went into those clouds. Makes sense. I mean, if you were an angel tasked with employment in the weather department, you'd probably want your housewares near to the construction site. In later narratives, it would be Enoch who personally gave the nickel tour of heaven. Wouldn't happen, though, until he became the angel Metatron. One such telling can be found in Legend of the Yahudim, uh, Legends of the Jews, and it says this. Hereupon Elohim commanded Metatron, the angel of the face, to conduct Moshe to the celestial regions amid the sound of music and song. And he commanded him furthermore to summon 30,000 angels to serve as his bodyguard, 15,000 to right uh, of him and 15,000 to left of him. In abject terror, Moshe asked Metatron, Who art thou? And the angel replied, I am Enoch, the son of Jared, thy ancestor, and Elohim has changed me to accompany thee to his throne. But Moshe murmured, saying, I am but flesh and blood, and I cannot look upon the countenance of an angel. Whereupon Metatron changed Moshe's flesh into torches of fire, his eyes into markaba wheels, his strength into an angel's, and his tongue into a flame. And he took him to heaven with a a retinue of 30,000 angels, one half moved to right of them and one half to left of them. Pause. I take the passage before us with a skeptical dosage of salt. Legends of the Yahudim, religions of the Jews, is still worth reporting on, though. You probably don't believe the part where Moshe transforms from flesh and blood to that of an angel, and I don't blame you, but I'm sticking to it. In a little while, you'll come to see that it's otherwise impossible to travel throughout the seven heavens, as flesh and blood would never survive the trip. Just because Yashiahu, Enoch, and Baruch haven't mentioned it doesn't mean they haven't made a successful transition either. Continuing. In the first heaven, Moshe saw streams upon streams of water, and he observed that the whole heaven consisted of windows, at each of which angels were stationed. Metatron named and pointed out all the windows of heaven to him, the window of prayer and the window of supplication, of weeping and of joy, plentitude and starvation, wealth and poverty, war and peace, conception and birth, showers and soft rains, sin and repentance, life and death, pestilence and healing, sickness and health, and many windows more. Legends of the Jews, uh, 2, 4, 165. The point of these windows isn't simply to decide when to hold the waters at bay or release them as judgment. It would only make sense that there would be windows for other things as well, like prayer. Is it so difficult to believe that one person might open a window to let the breeze in, and that an angel might do the same for supplication? The same person who opens the window to let the cool spring breeze through will then uh, board it shut whenever hurricane season manifests itself. Even flies manage to fill the kitchen on a hot summer day, and that isn't good. Can't let everything through. Best to close them shut at some hours of the day. I mean, you do pray, don't you? How do you think that prayer makes the journey from here to there? A Copernican would likely tell me that heaven is some sort of spiritual dimension, and so our prayer simply appears, as if that explains everything away. 
Saying our prayers transfer from one dimension to another is still supernatural and well beyond the accepted circle of academia. Wouldn't you think windows would be employed for dimensions too? Another way of describing these, once again, might be portals. All right, if you guys need to catch up, we are on page 21, part two, second heaven. I guess you could say cosmology is a lot like a skyscraper, and I described this earlier, in that Sheol is the basement and the boiler room, whereas Earth is the lobby floor. Each ascending story is another heaven, obviously, and you've probably deduced this already, but Yahuwah owns the penthouse. We just haven't taken the elevator up that far yet. Perhaps I should have gone with a Tartarian allegory. Oh well. Our observations for the second heaven keep the same players. Enoch, Moshe, Yeshayahu, and Baruch. Let's start off by seeing what, what Yeshayahu has observed. And again, he made me to ascend to the second heaven. Now the height of that heaven is the same as from the heaven um, to the earth and to the firmament. Pause. This is what I meant when stating earlier that Ye Yahuwah was king of many worlds. Sure, there might be doorways to other woodland realms like Narnia, for all I know, but the prophets are never recorded as having visited those places. The first heaven was another world entirely from our own, by which we were only given scarce details. Enoch visiting the treasure houses is probably not so dissimilar from somebody describing a mining operation and an electrical plant on Earth, and then coming across to the reader as though our entire realm were a place of industry. We know it isn't. Yeshayahu describing the height of the second heaven as the same height as the firmament to earth should inform us that each ascending world is the same size as our own. It would take someone several lifetimes to explore our earthly realm, perhaps dozens. How long do you suspect each prophet was granted access in the heavens? Continuing. And I saw there, as in the first heaven, angels on the right and on the left, and a throne in the midst, and the praise of the angels in the second heaven. And he who sat on the throne in the second heaven was more glorious than all the rest. And there was great glory in the second heaven, and the praise also was not like the praise of those who were in the first heaven. And I fell on my face to worship him. But the angel who conducted me did not permit me, but said unto me, Worship neither throne nor angel which belongs to the six heavens. For this cause I was sent to conduct thee until I tell thee in the seventh heaven. For above all the heavens and their angels have thy throne been placed, and thy garments and thy crown which thou shalt see. And I rejoice with great joy that those who love the Most High and His Beloved will afterwards ascend thither by the angel of the Ruach HaKodesh. The Ascension of Isaiah 7, 18-23. It's interesting here that um, here he is um, accredited as being the angel of the Ruach HaKadosh. It's kind of interesting. See what I mean? The Elohim sitting upon the throne, or perhaps we should simply refer to him as a divine being for now, was more glorious than anyone else found in that heaven. And that is because he derived from the world above the one in which he ruled. Not surprising, even the praises there were far grander than the first. If you read my Millennial Kingdom Plus Mudflood paper, A Tale of Two Jerusalems, then you recall that Yahusha reigns from a Yerushalayim on earth, which is 14 square miles, whereas New Yerushalayim in the third heaven, we haven't gotten there yet, is 14,000 square miles, give or take. Each heaven, while being a representative of those above and below, continually gets grander. 
Apparently, Yeshayahu's trip through the heavens involved the throne rooms and little to nothing else. Again, though, this is where our first and only qualifier for living as a Ruach in the heavenly realms is defined. Not even those selected to sit on thrones and rule over the creatures of that world were to be praised or worshipped. Yahuwah alone was to be worshipped and his beloved. Our next visitation to the second heaven comes to us by way of Baruch. Let's see what he's up to. So this comes from 3 Baruch chapter 3. And the angel of Yahuwah took me and led me to a second heaven, and he showed me there also a door like the first and said, Let us enter through it. And we entered, being borne on wings, a distance of about 60 days' journey. And he showed me there also a plain, and it was full of men whose appearance was like that of dogs, and whose feet were like those of stags. And I asked the angel, I pray thee, Adonai, say to me who these are. And he said, These are they who gave counsel to build the tower. For they whom thou seest uh, drove forth multitudes of both men and women to make bricks, among whom a woman making bricks was not allowed to be released in the hour of childbirth, but brought forth while she was making bricks and carried her child in her apron and continued to make bricks. And Yahuwah appeared to them and confused their speech when they had built the tower to the height of 463 cubits. And they took a gimlet and sought to pierce the heaven, saying, Let us see whether the heaven is made of clay, or of brass, or of iron. When Elohim saw this, he did not permit them, but smote them with blindness and confusion of speech, and rendered them as thou see. Wait a second. Didn't, didn't Baruch already observe prisoners from Babel in the first heaven? He did. Those on the first floor were described as having the faces of oxen, and the horns of stags, and the feet of goats but with the haunches of lambs, whereas here he saw men whose appearance was that of dogs, but with the feet of stags. Why the bricklayers were banished to the first heaven while the taskmasters were imprisoned in the second is anybody's best guess. For whatever reason, though, Yeshayahu was taken to each succeeding capital throne room. Contrarily, Baruch is being shown the penitentiary. The unimaginative sort may be pressed to read his singular observation and imagine an entire world defined by dungeons. Closer inspection, however, will demonstrate that the prisoners which Baruch is describing live on a plain. There may have been entire continents, complete with mountain ranges and storybook villages to explore, not to mention Enoch's storehouses and Yeshayahu's throne rooms, but Baruch was not given a tour of those. There are many plains in our realm. They are large, scattered, and diverse. The equivalent may not uh, be so dissimilar from somebody peering in upon Alcatraz or San Quentin and then trying to explain their experience to the inhabitants of another realm. Well, wouldn't you know it, Enoch was also shown a maximum, a maximum security prison in the second heaven, and it reads as follows. This comes from chapter 7 of Second Enoch. And those men took me and led me up on to the second heaven and showed me darkness greater than earthly darkness. And there I saw prisoners hanging, watched, awaiting the great and boundless judgment. And these angels were dark-looking, more than earthly darkness, and incessantly making weeping through all hours. And I said to the men who were with me, Wherefore are these incessantly tortured? They answered me, These are the apostates of Elohim, who obeyed not Elohim's commands, but took counsel with their own will, and turned away with their prince, who also is fastened on the fifth level. And I felt great pity for them, and they saluted me, and I said to, 
and said to me, Man of Elohim, pray for us to Yahuwah. And I answered to them, Who am I, a mortal man, that I should pray for angels? Who knows whether I go or what will befall me, or who will pray for me? But didn't the watchers get bound in the earth? They did. How is it that they ended up in heaven then? Azazel was their prince, and he was also bound in the earth. And yet, here we read that he was fastened three floors up. I have no answer for that, but I'll take a stab at it anyways. Everything that we're reading tells us there are direct relations to be had between each layer of heaven with Yahuwah above and the earth below. That's all I've got. Perhaps as angelic beings who'd passed through portals into the world of men, their fleshly bodies were buried in the earth while their spiritual selves were chained in heaven. It's a type of checkerboard dualism. Who really knows? I'm starting to pick up a theme, though. Not just with Enoch, but with all three prophets. Hear me out on this. Enoch has just been shown the watchers who transgress the law of Yahuwah by taking on human wives and teaching the mysteries of heaven to humanity. Hadn't he personally spoken with them while they were going about their business and downcast upon earth? He did. Yahuwah even had Enoch pronounce their judgment upon them. Therefore, what Enoch is being shown in the heavens directly relates to his life and ministry on the earth. I'll say that again. What Enoch is being shown in the heavens directly relates to his life and ministry on the earth. Well, the same thing can be said of Yahshayahu and Baruch. Yeshayahu was a prophet who regularly visited the throne room of, um, of Achaz, um, uh, Manasseh, and um, Hezekiah. So let's try that again. Um, Hezekiah and Manasseh, kings of Yehuda. Hezekiah was the 15th in line, starting from David, and a rare exception among them, as he instituted a strict worship of Yahuwah under his rule. The other kings, forget about it. Manasseh was even embodied by Satan and eventually took a wooden saw out on Yeshayahu. Therefore, we can say his journey through the heavens reflected his own earthly ministry. Baruch was a temple priest on Mount Zion and lived to see Babylon destroy Yerushalayim. First and second Baruch was written afterwards, as was his apocalypse. If you read my paper, The Altar of Yahuwah, then you'll know that the mountain of worship was a doorway or portal to paradise and that Shem's school had access to both. Who was a contemporary of Shem but Nimrod? The tower which he built was an attempt to replicate Meshelzedek's um, city of Shalom. If you think about it, Nimrod could very well have become a student of Meshelzedek and worshipped the Most High under those terms, but he didn't want to. He desired to break into heaven in a manner which pleased him and to lead the rest of humanity into that rebellion. In this way, Baruch had watched Babylon trample the mountain of Yahuwah underfoot. Its destruction was heavy upon his mind. It's probably why he was taken to their prisons and shown their end. Legends of the Yahudim is once again the wild card, but we'll play it anyways. If you recall, those passages deal exclusively with Moshe. Before reading, you might want to hold on to something. This is what it says. In the second heaven, Moshe saw the angel Nuriel standing 300 parsings high, with his retinue of fifty myriads of angels, all fashioned out of water and fire, and all keeping their faces turned towards the Shekinah while they sang a song of praise to Elohim. Metatron explained to Moshe that these were the angels set over the clouds, the winds, and the rains, who returned speedily as soon as they had executed the will of the Creator to their station in the second of the heavens, there to proclaim the praise of Elohim. 
There, that wasn't so bad, was it? Elsewhere, Yeshayahu never told us what the angels did, exactly, aside from worshipping, or what they looked like. And especially not how very large they were. They're huge. Moshe's reported observation agrees in two ways. Firstly, that their worship was directed towards the Shekinah in the highest heaven should now be a given. What I find interesting, however, and this denotes a second agreement with Yashiyahu, is that the angels whom Moshe saw were employed in the lower heaven, tending to the storehouses of weather, of course, as Enoch had already observed. These divine beings very well may be the angels to the left of the throne who appeared less in glory than those on the right. Once again, we are dutifully reminded that every ascending world balances a dual relationship between the happenings of earth and the highest heaven. It only makes sense that they would. That's the entire purpose of his story. The earth is a womb intended to harvest souls, but in an environment where each man chooses good or evil, the blessing or the curse. The earth was created in such a way that a choice must be made. Will he live a life that might exhibit all the character traits of his father in the ethereal realm, as above, so below? Or pray that his heavenly Father's will might be done on the earth as it is in heaven. The world we inhabit is quite literally a harvest, and the angels are his harvesters. Okay, so this is part three, and this is where I think it gets really interesting. Unfortunately, the third heaven is so huge, and there is so much written on it, that it would, ta it would take a book. And um, just so you guys know, give away the ending here, I only make it to the end of this uh this document to the third heaven i don't even get to fourth and above and even still i had to leave out a lot of stuff like i completely snubbed new jerusalem just know it's there uh there's a uh, i talk very little about gehenna that would be a whole nother discussion in and of itself there's so much there i spend most of my time in paradise let's get to it part three third heaven we are on page 28 if you need to catch up the third heaven is the big one. It's the world you've been waiting for your entire life for. If heaven were a series of vacation destinations, complete with a booth at the front gate and an elevator operator, they'd be selling tickets, tickets exclusively for the third floor. I know that's a terrible analogy, but I have good reason for it. Though it is true that Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, sits above every other Elohim in the seventh heaven, and that is very much worth getting excited over, it is in the third heaven where we find paradise in the city of New Yerushalayim. Not only that, but the lake of fire as well. There's more to discover here, and I don't want to give away any spoilers quite yet. I was actually pretty amazed at some of the stuff I found in here. Another thing that can be found on the third floor are Greek ideals and Hebrew ideals and a butting of heads between them. A few years ago, I would have flung up my arms and demanded that everything I'm about to talk about was all Greek, maybe even Babylonian, and therefore pagan. You should know that I've changed my views considerably. Still, though, if Yasha, Yahu, or Baruch penned these texts, then they would have been originally in Hebrew, not Greek or Latin or Coptic. What my recent reading of the Hebrew New Testament books has taught me is that the simple swap of a word here or the smallest insertion of a phrase there, when translating a text from its mother language to the more common dialect, can alter or even capsize its meaning considerably, sometimes even introduce new ideas. Our incoming experience may have indeed have some of that. In fact, it's more likely than not. But like I've already insinuated, that's to be expected of any book. It is what it is. 
The common human experience is to shoot the messenger who has thought it worth his time and effort to at least present his fightings. That's all I can do, really. Report upon the information that has passed my way. And so, here it is. Checking back in with Yashiyahu again, we read, And he raised me to the third heaven, and in like manner I saw those upon the right and upon the left, and there was a throne there in the midst, but the memorial of this world is there unheard of. And I said to the angel who was with me, For the glory of my appearance was undergoing transformation as I ascended to each heaven in turn. Nothing of the vanity of that world is here named. Pause. You probably didn't believe me when Moshe was, uh, was turned to the countenance of an angel, and I stood by it, did you? Well, now even Yashayahu has owned up to that fact. I can only imagine it's impossible not to and yet survive the trek. With each ascending world, Yeshayahu goes from displaying the glories of the angels on the left of the throne to the angels on the right. Rinse and repeat in each world. The same thing can be said of Adam and Heva, but in reverse. While in the Garden of Eden, they gleamed with the glory of angels. It says so right here. This comes from first Adam and Eve. Then Elohim said to Adam, While thou were under my command and was a bright angel, you knew not this water. Okay, and then we will see also, first Adam and Eve 8.2. Then Elohim added, I said unto Adam, When thou was under subjection to me, thou had a bright nature within thee. And for that reason could, not, uh, could thou see things far, afar off. But after thy transgression, thy bright nature was, was withdrawn from thee, and it was not left to thee to see things afar off, but only near at hand, and after the ability of the flesh, for it is brutish. It actually makes me wonder if um, the transfiguration, uh, not the transfiguration, the temptation of Satan with, with uh, Yahusha, if they, there was a bit of a transfiguration that went on there that they could see far away. The angelic glory of Adam and Heva is certainly pertinent to our present whereabouts. For the Garden of Eden was in the third heaven, you see. Paradise and the Garden are the same thing. I've gone over this before. The Land of Eden was the same real estate as Mount Zion. But the Land of Eden isn't the same thing as the Garden of Eden. Rather, they were representatives of each other and working in a symbiotic relationship, just as the temple on earth was supposed to be a reflection of the temple in heaven. Though it is true that Adam was created from the earth, um, actually on the mountain of worship, he was placed in paradise. When that happened, he became gloried or glorified, precisely as we've already seen with Yahu and Moshe. Continuing with uh, Isaiah. And he answered me and said unto me, Nothing is named on account of its weakness, and nothing is hidden there of what is done. And I wish to learn how it is known. And he, and he answered me, saying, When I have raised thee to the seventh heaven, whence I was sent, to that which is above these, then thou shalt know that there is nothing hidden from the thrones and from those who dwell in the heavens and from the angels. And the praise wherewith they praised and gloried of him who sat on the throne was great. And the glory of the angels on the right hand and on the left was beyond that of the heaven which was below them. I just got done explaining how the third heaven is the big one. And yet Yeshayahu keeps a mum over the whole thing. His experience was one in which he simply arrived in the left without describing anything. By now, his entire focus was on the seventh heaven, specifically wanting to know if anything was hidden from the seventh heaven. The quick answer is nothing is ever hidden. What I should have mentioned earlier, though, is that Yashiyahu continue, his continual transformation was a consistent theme with the entire book. Yahusha descended from the seventh heaven on down through each floor to the ground level, diminishing his glory as he went, so as not to be recognized. 
had he been identified at any leg of his journey, that his incarnation would have been jeopardized by some of the shadier angels, as not even Satan knew who he was. And now for Baruch's arrival. And I, Baruch, said, Behold, Adonai, thou didst show me great and wonderful things, and now show me all things for the sake of Yahuwah. And the angel said to me, Come, let us proceed. And I proceeded with the angel from that place about 185 days' journey. And he showed me a plain and a serpent, which appeared to be 200 uh, plethora in length. And he showed me Hades, and its appearance was dark and abominable. And I said, Who is this dragon, and who is this monster around him? And the angel said, The dragon is he who eats the bodies of those who spend their life wickedly, and he is nourished by them. And this is Hades which itself also closely resembles him, and that it also drinks about a cubit from the sea, which does not sink at all. Baruch said, How does this happen? And the angel said, Hearken, Yahuwah Elohim made 360 rivers, of which the chief of all are Alpheus, um, Abba Byrus, and uh, the Garikas. And because of these, the sea does not sink. See what I mean? The strangeness of it all escalated quickly. I left the word Hades in there when, in fact, the Hebrew counterpart is Sheol. Perhaps it originally read Gehenna at one time, but it doesn't now. No, it reads Hades, which, if you're familiar with cosmology, is supposed to be below the earth, not above. And then we see a dragon eating the bodies of the wicked. Is he acting as the cleanup crew and disposing of them once and for all, or pooping them out and then eating them eternally? See, it, it is passages like this which tempts me to throw it out. If what we just read is original to the text, then we are left with two possible outcomes. Either the author borrowed from pagan ideas, or the pagans learned the mysteries of heaven through the school of divine beings. I have con come to conclude the later. You'll see more of what I mean in a moment. By the way, guys, um, after I finished this paper, I did a lot more. I kind of was suspecting in my mind. I, was, I did more digging on this, and I'm pretty convinced this is the Le uh, Leviathan being described here. That Leviathan, um, that, yeah, that, this, that's a whole other trail that I don't have time for tonight. Sheol has a chief captain whom we have already met in books like the Gospel of Nicodemus. And by the way, Leviathan is also considered one of the seven chief captains of Sheol. Interesting. But here he is seen drinking from the sea. I'm not sure if the sea is exclusive to the third heaven or if his actions there correspond to the earth below. What we have already dealt with, we have already dealt with this dilemma when observing the imprisoned watchers in the second heaven. How do the works in heaven correspond with our own realm? Specifically, can the Ruach of a dead soul be imprisoned below the earth and still manage a presence in heaven above? Is that how the symbiotic relationship works? These are questions which I cannot answer at present. I will remind you again that I'm just a messenger. It's up to you to decide. Or better yet, help me problem solve rather than simply letting your flatulence be known and tossing aside what we do not know. The, the, hopefully that didn't come across as rude, but I, I get that so often people who ask questions and they don't want to seek answers. The divine being Hades is depicted as a type of dragon, which shouldn't surprise anyone seeing as how the seraphim are an entire race of reptilian beings. What interests me, though, is his drinking from the sea. In this way, he is indirectly compared with the Leviathan. You can see there that I was already making the connection. More directly, um, what um, Char Charabdis, if I pronounce that right, Charabdis, the sea monster of Homer's mythology. So I'm going to quote from Homer real quick. And by the way, this seems to be describing Leviathan and Behemoth kind of 
two here. It's kind of interesting. You see the same, the same repeated pattern throughout mythology. We then sailed up on the narrow strait with whaling, for on one side lay Scylla, and on the other, divine Charybdis, terribly sucked down the seawater of the sea. Verily, whenever she belched it forth like a cauldron on a great fire, she would seethe and bubble in utter turmoil, and high overhead the spray would fall on the tops of both the cliffs. But as often as she sucked down the salt water of the sea, within she could all be seen in utter turmoil, and round about the rock roared terribly, while beneath the earth appeared black with sand and pale fear seized my men. So she's creating like a whirlpool. Uh, Charabdis was a sea monster whose daily sucking and expulsion of water created the high and low tides of each passing day. She was believed to live under a small rock on one side of a narrow channel. Opposite her was Scylla, another sea monster that lived inside a much larger rock. The sides of the strait were within an arrow shot of each other, and sailors attempting to avoid one of them would come and reach or contact of the other. If you're wondering why I put quotes on that, it's because the information was pulled from Wikipedia. Well, the same divine being is described in Jason and the Agronauts, in Virgil's The Anid, and by um, Aesop. Are they the same creature? The defining difference with the monstrous Hades in Third Baruch is that his masculine, rather than feminine, and the tr three chief rivers, and by the way, that the masculine there could be just be a, um, you know, translation error happens all the time and the three chief rivers you see right there Al alpheus abiris and the uh, Greekus, flows into the ocean thereby counterbalancing his consumption that leads us to the next artifact in pagan lore i'm assuming that alpheus is referring to the river alpheus of greek mythology alpheus was simply a body of water though he was oh i'm sorry he wasn't simply a body of water he was a river elohim a river god just so we're clear, it wouldn't be the first time that a Hebrew writer attributed another pagan Elohim to a real divine being. Certainly not the first instance of a divine being becoming manifested with nature. A river being granted the status of a Ruach, however, that's a first, so far as my readings go. We are on page 35. I might as well go get this out of the way now. The depictions of Gehenna, or is it Hades? given to us in Second Enoch is troubling for certain. Not sure what to make of either account. I'm assuming what we are about to read is the same place described to us in Third Baruch. In recap, Baruch saw a hungry man-eating dragon and his thirsty contemporary, Hades. The entire realm of Hades is pictured as existing within those living beings. And there's a lot of actually texts out there that say the same thing of Leviathan, that like Sheol exists within Leviathan. Kind of interesting. And so you get the same idea when, when Jonah was swallowed. Some accounts say by Leviathan, and it appears that he died, that he went to Sheol. So that's kind of interesting. I should probably just let Second Enoch speak for himself, though. Reading. And those two men led me up onto the northern side and showed me there a very terrible place, and there were all manners of tortures in that place cruel darkness and, um, and gloom, and there is no light there, but murky fire constantly flaming aloft. 
and there is a fiery river coming forth, and that whole place is everywhere fire, and everywhere there is frost and ice, thirst and shivering, while the bonds are very cruel, and the angels fearful and merciless, bearing angry weapons, merciless torture. And I said, Whoa, whoa, how very terrible is this place. And those men said to me, This place, O Enoch, is prepared for those who dishonor Elohim, who on earth practice sin against nature, which is child corruption after this uh, sodomitic fashion magic-making, enchantments, and devilish witchcrafts, and who boast of their wicked deeds, stealing lies, um, calumnies, envy, rancor, fornication, murder, and who, accursed, steal the souls of men, who, seeing the poor take away their goods and themselves wax rich, injuring them for other men's goods, who, being able to satisfy the empty, made the hungering to die, being able to clothe, strip the naked, and who knew not their creator, and bowed to the soulless and lifeless Elohim, who cannot see nor hear, vain Elohim, who also built hewn images and bowed down to unclean handiwork. For all these is prepared, this place among these, for eternal inheritance. Indeed, this has the, all the markings of Gehenna, garbage heap and trash compactor, the place where the wicked end up. Anyone who does not gain entrance into Eden or is not permitted within New Jerusalem ends up here. On the surface, there appears to be a conflict between the ongoing torture of the wicked described in some texts and the eternal death prescribed for them in others. That is, once Sheol is itself is thrown into the lake of fire and death is no more. But again, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I'm just the messenger. Continuing. We're back in Baruch now. And I said, I pray thee, show me which is the tree which led Adam astray. This is where it gets really trippy, guys. And the angel said to me, it is the vine which the angel Samael planted, whereat Yahuwah Elohim was angry, and he cursed him in his plant. Well, also on this account, he did not permit Adam to touch it, and therefore the devil being envious deceived him through his vine. Upon arriving in the third heaven, Baruch's first request is to be shown the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The angel's response is packed with juicy information. The tree is firstly identified as a vine. If your immediate thought is to imagine the wine pressed from grapes, then you would be correct. And now we know why Adam and Haver were forbidden to eat of it. It is Samael who planted the vineyard. For this reason alone, Yahuwah commanded that Adam and Haver forsake its fruit. He knew it would be used to seduce them. The same passage in the Slavonic version of 3rd Baruch gives details for added clarity and reads. I actually like the Slavonic version way better. Uh, and actually, people, uh, those who study this book, say it's the more accurate version too. And the angel said to me, when Elohim made the garden and commanded Michael to gather 200,003 angels so that they could plant the garden, Michael planted the olive and Gabriel the apple, Uriel the nut, Raphael the melon, and Satanael the vine. For at first his name in former times was Satanael, and similarly all the angels planted the various trees. And again, I, Baruch, said to the angel, Adonai, show me the tree through which the serpent deceived Hava and Adam. And the angel said to me, listen, Baruch, in the first place the tree was the vine, but secondly the tree is sinful desire which Satanael spread over Hava and Adam. And because of this, Elohim has cursed the vine because Satanael had planted it. And by that, he deceived the protoplast Adam and Hava. 
Cross-referencing each angel and the tree they planted would likely reap a basket full of rewards. The short of it, though, is that Yahuwah knew each of their hearts and that Satanael desired rebellion above all else. It's not that the grapes were evil. Rather, it's what he intended them for. Wine is an excellent motivator for sinful desire. In and of themselves, grapes are only so evil as the bite of an apple, which is to say, they aren't. Do you see what I did there? Turns out Gabriel planted the ap apple and he was framed. The first book of Adam and Hava gives a similar account and given the present context makes a lot more sense. So first book of Adam and Eve, chapter 13. Then I commanded thee concerning the tree that thou eat not thereof. Yet I knew that Satan, who deceived himself, would also deceive thee. So I made known to thee by means of the tree not to come near him. And I told thee not to eat of the fruit thereof, nor to taste of it, nor yet to sit under it, nor to yield to it. Had I not been spoken to thee, O Adam, concerning the tree, and had I left thee without a commandment, and thou had sinned, it would have been an offense on my part. For not having given thee an order, thou wouldst turn around and blame me for it. You see, Yahuwah may have allowed the tree to remain, but it's not like he planted it there to tempt them. He even says he'd let them know about its existence so that the offense wouldn't be his if they decided to partake. This all plays out like Yahushua's wheat and parables. The wheat are expected to exist alongside Satan's planning of tares and yet remain obedient. It's all a part of the test. Commanding them not to partake of the tree was the same thing as telling them not to approach Hasatan. It was his possession to begin with. Accordingly, they weren't even supposed to approach the tree, let alone uh, sit beneath. What do you suppose Yahuwah meant by not yielding to it? The fruit led to something else, sinful desire. The revelation of Moshe adds details to the temptation of Adam and Hava, and in doing so, frames it in a slightly different light. So we read. This is kind of a long portion, but it's well worth it. Then... Then Eve says to them, Listen, all my children, and my children's children, and I shall relate to you how our enemy deceived us. By this point in the book, Adam is dead, I think. And she's relating the, uh, the, the first sin. It came to pass while we were keeping paradise, and we kept each the portion allotted to him by Elohim. And I was keeping my lot, the south and west. And the devil went into the lot of Adam, where were the male wild beasts? Since Elohim parted to us the wild beast, and had given all the males to your father, and all the females he gave to me, and each of us watched his own. And the devil spoke to the serpent, saying, Arise, come to me, and I shall tell you a thing in which thou mayest be of service. Then the serpent came to him, and the devil says to him, I hear that thou art more sagacious than all the wild beasts. And I have come to make thy acquaintance, and I have found thee greater than all the wild beasts, and, and they associate with thee, notwithstanding thou doest reverence to one far inferior. Why eatest thou of the trees, or of the tares of Adam and his wife, and not of the fruit of the paradise? Arise and come hither, and we shall make him be cast out of paradise through his wife, as we also were cast out through him. The serpent says to him, I am afraid. Uh, lest Yahuwah be angry with me. The devil says to him, Be not afraid, only become my instrument, and I will speak through thy mouth a word by which thou shalt be able to deceive him. 
Then straightway he, Hasatan, hung by the walls of paradise about the hour when the angels of Elohim went up to worship. Then Satan came in the form of an angel and praised Elohim as did the angels. And looking out from the wall, I, Hava, or Eve, saw him like an angel. And says he to me, Art thou Eve? And I said to him, I am. And says he to me, What doest thou in paradise? And I said to him, Elohim has set us to keep it and to eat of it. The devil answered me through the mouth of the serpent, Ye do well, but you do not eat of every plant. And I say to him, Yes, of every plant we eat, but only one which is in the midst of paradise, about which Elohim has commanded us not to eat of it, since you will die the death. Then says the serpent to me, As Elohim liveth, I am grieved for you, because you are like cattle. For I do not wish you to be ignorant of this, but rise, come hither, listen to me, and eat, and perceive the value of the tree as he told us. But I said to him, I am afraid, lest Elohim be angry with me. And he says to me, Be not afraid, for as soon as thou eatest, thine eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as Elohim in knowing what is good and what is evil. And Elohim knowing this, that ye shall be like him, has had a grudge against you, and said, Ye shall not eat of it. But do thou observe the plant, and thou shalt see great glory about it. And I observed the plant, and saw great glory about it. And I said to him, It is beautiful to the eyes to perceive. And I was afraid to take the fruit. And he says to me, Come, I will give to thee. Follow me. And I opened to him, and he came inside into paradise, and went through it before him, before me. And having walked a little, he turned and says to me, I have changed my mind, and will not give thee to eat. And this he said, wishing to, at last to entice and destroy me. And he says to me, Swear to me that thou wilt give also to thy husband. And I said to him, I know not by what oath I shall swear to thee, but what I know I say to thee, by the throne of Yahuwah and the cherubim and the tree of life, I will give also to my husband to eat. And when he had taken the oath from me, then he went and ascended upon it. What I'm attempting to do is cast a light upon the story from every possible angle. I offered a long passage, but it was good, no? Hasatan had already ruled from paradise before Hava's temptation. You can read about his dismissal for yourself in Ezekiel 28. That's another topic entirely, though. The point is that he was no longer welcome in the garden by the time that Adam and Hava were brought in to replace his rule over the earth. What is also clear is that Ezekiel 28 was absolutely correct in naming him a cherubim angel. We often imagine Hasatan as a seraph because of his serpentine-like descriptions. But as you can plainly see, he only convinced the serpent to be his mouthpiece. That doesn't mean he was one. There are other passages which speak of the serpent as a separate being entirely. I have also read another passage that describes Hasatan as a cherub. But again, let's not get sidetracked. When Hasatan mentioned to Heva that she did not eat from every tree, it's likely because he was fishing for information. Perhaps he wanted to know if his creative work remained. But more than anything... Who would be held liable for the transgression, Adam and Hava or Elohim? After her confession that Elohim had in fact commanded them not to eat of it, he led her there like he owned the place. And then we read this in the Genesis Targum. And the woman beheld Samael, the angel of death, and was afraid. Yet she knew that the tree was good to eat and that it was medicine for the enlightenment of her eyes and desirable tree by means of which to understand. And she took of its fruit and did eat, 
and she gave to her husband with her, and he did eat. Genesis 3.6. If you're paying attention, that's a direct confirmation to 3 Baruch 4.8. The divine being who was successful in tempting Hava was none other than Samael, the angel of death. And after reading the revelation of Moshe, we know now why Hava delivered the fruit to her husband. She had already bound herself in an oath. Uh, continuing with the Slavonic of 3 Baruch. And I, Baruch, said to the angel Adonai, If Elohim has cursed the vine and its seed, then how can it be of use now? And the angel said to me, Rightly you ask me. When Elohim made the flood upon the earth, he drowned every firstling, and he destroyed 104,000 giants. And the water rose above the highest mountains, 20 cubits above the mountains. And the water entered into the garden and took all that was blooming. Bringing out one shoot from the vine as Elohim withdrew the waters, and there was dry land, and Noah went out from the ark and found the vine lying on the ground and did not recognize it, having only heard about it and its form. Now, I didn't mention in this, guys, but keep in mind that uh, we've talked about this in the past, and I've shown um, that I, I believe that Eden actually, uh, the garden was actually within sight, uh, but it, it was above the mountain of worship and it, it finally ascended. So that's what it means when the water came into the garden uh, that was so high up. It didn't actually go. I don't think it actually went up into the third heaven. It's not saying that. Pause. So much going on here. The number of 104,000 giants is fascinating. The lost book of King Og tells of the 100,000 giant war, which went down as the floodwaters rose. Baruch's additional account of 104,000, so 4,000 more, seems to confirm that number. According to the Genesis Targum, the remaining 4,000 giants were attempting to stop up the fountains of the deep. It says so in Genesis 6.11. It said, um, I'll just read what's highlighted there. And the giants were gathered there together with their sons and protrude them. Uh, so they actually were, seemed successful in stopping up the, some of the, the great deep. And afterwards, the windows of heavens were opened, and that did them in. So there's that. Most giants were engaged in battles. Others attempted to perturb the floodwaters. None were a success, obviously. The more pressing matter, however, is the shoot of the vine, which Noah discovered after the flood. According to 3rd Baruch, the vineyard which Noah planted had a parent, and it was none other than the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Too much? Well, the Genesis Targum once again confirms the vineyard's origin. So follow along. Genesis 9.20. And Noah began to be a man working in the earth, and he found a vine which the river had brought away from the Garden of Eden. And he planted it in a vineyard, and it flourished in a day, and its grapes became ripe, and he pressed them out. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he made himself naked in the midst of his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, beheld the nakedness of his father, and show to his brethren without. Not to be overlooked is the fact that Hasatan had sexual relations with Heva after she ate of the fruit, thereby conceiving Cain. Not going to explain that again here. I'd rather drop a link, Father of Cain, right there. Boom. There you go. Well, the same thing happened with Noah. While Noah was drunk, Ham had sex with his father's woman. Need another link? Right there. His father's nakedness, the sin of Ham, finally exp explained. Boom. Need another? Uh, need anything else explained? I got plenty of links to go around. You're probably wondering why Noah would plant such a vineyard knowing its origin. I had the same question. I'm sure Baruch did too. The angel didn't leave him hanging. Back to the third Baruch then. 
He thought to himself, saying, This is truly the vine which Satanael planted in the middle of the garden, by which deceived Hava and Adam. Because of this, Elohim cursed it and its seed. So if I planted, this is Noah, by the way, uh, speaking, not Baruch. So if I plant it, then will Elohim not be angry with me? And he, Noah, knelt down on his knees and fasted 40 days. Interesting number. Praying and crying, he said, Adonai, if I plant this, what will happen? And Yahuwah sent the angel Sarasail. He declared to him, Rise, Noah, and plant the vine, and alter its name, and change it for the better. The shocking revelation here is that Noah willingly planted a vine from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That also means all wine today is descended from that tree. Before you tell me that's proof that wine is evil, I will remind you that it is grapes which Noah grew. Grapes. You will have to back the trolley up and claim that grapes are evil rather than wine, which nobody is willing to do. I have yet to meet anyone who doesn't enjoy a good grape. So I will rephrase this again. Apparently, all grapes in existence today originate from paradise in third heaven, and they were planted by Satanael. Coming to knowledge about the vine from the angel uh, Sarasail lines up with Jubilees 10, wherein Noah was instructed by angels on the natural medicinal use of plants. Quickly we read, And one of us he commanded that we should teach Noah all their medicines. For he knew that they would not walk in uprightness, nor strive in righteousness. And we did according to all his words, all the malignant evil ones, the, the demons, we bound in the place of condemnation, and a tenth part of them we left that they might be subject before Satan on the earth. And we explained to Noah all the medicines of their diseases, together with their seductions, how he might heal them with herbs of the earth. And Noah wrote down all these things in a sephir, as we instructed him concerning every kind of medicine. Thus the evil Ruachoth, the demons, were uh, precluded from hurting the sons of Noah. And that's so interesting. Uh, if you pick up on that, how demons are hurting people through diseases and um, infirmities, and it's actually these, you know, it's herbs that can cleanse people, and not, not pharmacia. The lesson to be learned here is that grapes are neither good nor evil. Grapes are neutral. Though I suppose they can be employed for the use of either, kind of like the knowledge of good and evil. Yahuwah knew why Satan planted them in paradise, as a weapon for rebellion. Well, in the same manner by which Adam was prophesied to sit upon the throne, formerly occupied by Satan, the Greek version of 3rd Baruch tells us what would happen to the grapes of his vineyard. And I came and spoke to him the things concerning it, and he said, Shall I plant it? Okay, well, let's just skip ahead um, uh, to the, the highlighted section there. The, the angel says, Arise, Noah, and its bitterness shall be changed into sweetness, and its curse shall become a blessing, and that which is produced from it shall become the blood of Elohim. And as though it, 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 if the human race obtained condemnation, I should say, and through it, the human race obtained condemnation, so again, through Yahusha HaMashiach, the Emmanuel, will they receive in him the upward calling and the entry into paradise. Third Baruch chapter 4. Wait, the wine from paradise would become the blood of Elohim? That's what it appears to be saying. If I'm not mistaken, we've just been handed a reference to the blood of the renewed covenant. The same wine which cast Adam and Hava out of paradise was later used symbolically and by Yahushua of all people as the righteous souls returned to paradise. See what I mean? 
wine is neither good nor evil. It's all in how it's used. It's not like Hasatan created wine. No, he simply planted seeds in the garden. And anyways, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yahusha's proclamation of a renewed covenant. But let's give it a read anyways. Comes from This one comes from Matthew chapter 26. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the renewed covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. What are the chances that Hasatan would be in the room when Yahusha passed the juice around? Not a coincidence. Technically, Messiah dipped the bread in its sop and then handed it to Yehuda, who was possessed by Hasatan. The former cherub probably looked at what he was offered and was like, ah, hell nah. Talk about having the table turned. All right, we are on page 47. Getting close to the grand finale here. This is going to go a little bit over. I'm sorry, guys, but we'll get through it. Thank you for hanging in there. Unlike Baruch's journey, the arrival of Enoch into the third heaven is immediately met with images of paradise rather than Gehenna. He goes there too. It's just that the pathway of their tour is flipped in reverse order. Though short and brief, try not to oversimplify what Enoch is describing. Let's get straight to it. Chapter 8 of Second Enoch. And those men took me thence and led me up onto the third heaven and placed me there. And I looked downwards and saw the produce of these places, such as has never been known for goodness. And I saw all the sweet flowering trees and beheld their fruits which were sweet-smelling, and all the foods born of them bubbling with fragrant exaltation. And in the midst of the trees, that of life, in that place whereon Yahuwah rests when he goes up into paradise. And this tree is of ineffable goodness and fragrance and adorned more than every existing thing. And on all sides it is in, in form gold-looking and uh, vermilion and fire-like and covers all, and it has produce from all fruits. Visit enough castles or palaces, and it should be made apparent that every king has a garden, and very likely a dungeon. So it shouldn't surprise anyone to learn that a, pl uh, that a place was created within all the worlds where Yahuwah the Most High Elohim might visit and rest, a place far more delightful than any other imagined. It's not a stretch of the imagination by any means to figure Yahuwah rested in paradise on the seventh day of creation. Genesis describes him as walking through the garden during the cool of the day, much as any king would. The Aramaic Targum specifies that it was the word of Yahuwah who made a daily jaunt. And then we read this, Genesis 2.8 Targum. And a garden from the, from the Eden of the just was planted by the word of Yahuwah Elohim before the creation of the world. And he made there to dwell the man when he had created him. The garden was planted by Yahusha HaMashiach and before the creation of the world too. Specifically, it was designed for people, a place where the holy family might rest with their adopted sons and daughters. Perhaps now you have a better understanding of why Gehenna would be placed in the third heaven too. It was out of necessity. Every king knows there will be those who rebel against him. Therefore, the dungeon was included in the blueprint. Continuing Second Enoch, its root is in, uh, is in the garden at the earth's end. He's talking about the tree of life. And paradise is between corruptibility and incorruptibility. Another contrast between 3rd Baruch and 2nd Enoch is that Baruch's attention was directed towards the tree of knowledge of good and evil, whereas Enoch was immediately drawn to the tree of life. The way he describes it, though, its root goes out to the earth's very end. 
That's a big tree, no? Compare that with the Genesis Targum again, which reads, And Yahuwah Elohim made to grow from the ground every tree that was desirable to behold and good to eat, and the tree of life in the midst of the garden, whose height was a journey of 500 years, and the tree of whose fruit they who ate would distinguish between good and evil. Genesis 3.9 My understanding of 500 years journey is that it's an idiom for the total height or breadth of the earth. I suppose that that means there isn't a place one can stand in the third heaven, even far beyond the walls of the garden, without seeing its massive reach. Perhaps that's why so many fruits can be harvested from one source. I can only suspect all tree roots are somehow blended with it, almost like one organism. Also notice another comparison with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or rather a contrast. Those who eat fruit from the tree of life will distinguish between what is good and evil, whereas Hasatan's tree could be, be used as a weapon for persuasion for good or evil. Moving on. And two springs come out, which send forth honey and milk, and their springs send forth oil and wine, and they separate into four parts and go around with quiet course and go down into the paradise of Eden between corruptibility and incorruptibility. And thence they go forth along the earth and have a revolution to the circle, even as other elements. Seems to me like Hyperborea has just been described, or rather Hyperborea is a symbolic model, albeit a possible smaller model of paradise in the third heaven. It says the two springs separate into four parts and then go forth, performing a revolution around the circle of the earth, just like the other elements. And as you can clearly see uh, with the pictures I put there on page 49, uh, as you can clearly see, that's precisely how it works on a flat earth. Ocean currents are somewhat chaotic on a globe. They go all over the place. Not so on an AE map. They rotate in a complete circle, precisely as how Second Enoch describes. Continuing, And here there is no unfruitful tree, and every place is blessed. And there are three hundred angels, very bright, who keep the garden, and with incessant sweet singing and never silent voices serve Yahuwah throughout all days and hours. And I said, How very sweet is this place? And those men said to me, This place, O Enoch, is prepared for the righteous, who endure all manner of offense from those that exasperate their souls, who avert their eyes from iniquity, and make righteous judgment, and give bread to the hungry, and cover the naked with clothing, and raise up the fallen, and help injured orphans, and who walk without fault before the face of Yahuwah, and serve him alone. And for them is prepared this place for eternal inheritance. Of course, that's a complete contrast from Gehenna. If you recall, the 300 angels who tend to the garden correspond nicely with the revelation of Moshe, wherein we read, Then straightway he hung, Satan, he hung by the walls of paradise about the hour when the angels of Elohim went up to worship. So Hasatan was only able to sneak into the garden, or rather convince Hava to let him through the gate, once the angels left to worship Elohim. Returning now to 3rd Baruch, and I need a drink of water. We are on page 51. I think we have like 10 pages left. After learning about the origins of wine, Baruch's trip through the heavens becomes even stranger, as he then sees the sun being pulled by a man in a chariot. A fiery phoenix is also involved. Your probable first inclination is to turn towards images of Ra in Egypt or Apollo in Greece and denounce it all as pagan. And I wouldn't blame you if you did. I even included a picture of Apollo taking a trip through the clouds for dramatic effect. Who's the woman in his arms? Quite the babe. Perhaps the sun and Luna have finally hooked up after all these years. We all saw it coming. Why couldn't they? 
Either Third Baruch was copying pagan prototypes, or the mysteries were given the secrets of heaven by the watchers and the 70 shepherds without being ruled by Yahuwah's instructions in righteous living. Again, you will have to decide on its pagan origins. I'm just the messenger. So, getting into it. And he took me and led me where the sun goes forth, and he showed me a chariot and four under which burnt a fire, and in the chariot was sitting a man wearing a crown of fire, and the chariot was drawn by forty angels. And behold, a bird circling before the sun, about nine cubits away, and I said to the angel, What is this bird? And he said to me, This is the guardian of the earth. And I said, Adonai, how is he the guardian of the earth? Teach me. And the angel said to me, This bird flies alongside of the sun, and expanding his wings receives its fiery rays. For if he were not receiving them, the human race would not be preserved, nor any other living creature. But Elohim appointed this bird thereto, and he expanded his wings, and I saw on his right wing very large letters, as large as the space of a threshing floor, and the size of about 400,000 modi. And the letters were of gold, and the angel said to me, Read them. And I read, and they ran thus, Neither earth nor heaven bring me forth, but wings of fire bring me forth. And I said, Adonai, what is this bird, and what is his name? And the angel said to me, His name is called Phoenix. And I said, And what does he eat? And he said to me, The man of heaven and the dew of the earth. I kind of find that interesting. And I said, Does the bird <laughs> um, excrete? Interesting question to ask. And he said to me, He excretes a worm, and the excrement of the worm is cinnamon, which kings and princes use. But wait, and thou shalt see the glory of Elohim. Amazing. Page 53. Gods of Egypt is advertised to us as a 2016 fantasy film, and yet I'm starting to get the idea that they're shoving it in our faces. That's what Hollywood is good for, you know, giving us the truth but selling it as fiction, trivializing the supernatural into a watered-down product, even. Simply amazing. None of this will make any sense to the sort of person who inhabits the spinning, wobbling globe of and fancies post-Newtonian thinking over the wisdom of the ancients. Cleaning science explains everything while leaving no room for the spiritual realm. Divine beings are indeed the stewards of nature. Continuing third Baruch. And while he was conversing with me, there was as a thunderclap, and the place was shaken on which we were standing. And I asked the angel, My Adonai, what is this sound? And the angel said to me, Even now the angels are opening the 365 gates of heaven, and the light is being separated from the darkness. And a voice came which said, Light giver, Give to the world radiance. And when I heard the noise of this bird, I said, Adonai, what is this noise? And he said, This is the bird who awakens from slumber the cocks upon earth. For as men do through the mouth, so also does the cock signify to those in the world in his own speech. For the sun is made ready by the angels, and the cock crows. And now you know, admit it, you've always wondered how roosters all over the world are capable of beating the clock day after day. Science would say it has something to do with genetic programming or learned behavior. They may even play the evolution card. But whatever the case, I guarantee you they'll leave out the missing spiritual component. Fact of the matter is, we live in a conscious realm. Roosters function as they do by heavenly edict. They cockadoddle do when the angels open the gates of heaven. You will say that's impossible as roosters wake up at all hours of the day depending upon where they're perched on a fence in the world. This is true. There are, however, 365 gates leading to heaven. One for each day of the year, perhaps. Uh, no, it's, it says they're all being open whenever light is separated from the darkness. It takes 24 cyclic hours to separate the light from the darkness. 
if it took a day to open and close every gate, then we're looking at 15 gates per hour. My best guess is the gates in heaven line up with the zodiac. I even found a cross-reference to the relationship between roosters and the gates of heaven in the following passage. And this is actually where I think this gets really good. So this comes from the Testament of our father, Adam. The first hour of the night is the praise of the demons. And at that hour, they do injure or harm any human being. The second hour is the praise of the doves. The third hour is the praise of the fish and the fire and of all the lower depths. The fourth hour is the holy, holy, holy praise of the seraphim. And so I used to hear before I sinned the sound. This is, of course, Adam talking about his experience in paradise. The sound of their wings in paradise when the seraphim would beat them to the sound of their triple praise. But after I transgressed against the law, I no longer heard that sound. The fifth hour is the praise of the waters that are above heaven. And so I, together with the angels, used to hear the sound of mighty waves, a sign which would prompt them to lift a hymn of praise to the Creator. The sixth hour is the construction of clouds and of the great fear which comes in the middle of the night. The seventh hour is the viewing of their powers while the waters are asleep. And at that hour, the waters can be taken up, and the priest of Elohim mixes them with consecrated oil and anoints those who are afflicted, and they rest. The eighth hour is the sprouting up of the grass of the earth while, while the dew descends from heaven. The ninth hour is the praise of the cherubim. The tenth hour is the praise of human beings, and the gate of heaven is opened, through which the prayers of all living things enter, and they worship and depart. And at that hour, whatever a man will ask of Elohim is given to him when the seraphim and the roosters beat their wings. The eleventh hour there is joy in all the earth when the sun rises from paradise and shines forth upon creation. The twelfth hour is the waiting for incense and silence is imposed on all the ranks of fire and wind until all the priests burn incense to his divinity. And at that time, all the heavenly powers are dismissed. The Testament of our father Adam, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. I probably should have given some context. It is Adam speaking in the above passage. He is disseminating knowledge to Seth on the rotating hours of each day. I have only given the 12 hours at night, and as you can clearly see, the gates of heaven are open while the roosters beat their wings, all of which is in sync with the seraphim angels. Makes me wonder if the heavenly bird who awakens the rooster is somehow related to the seraphim. Uh, continuing with... Um, uh, I should have said cherubim. I don't know why I put seraphim. But it could have been seraphim. Continuing with third Baruch. And I said, and where does the sun begin its labors? After the cock crows? And the angel said to me, listen, Baruch, all things whatsoever I show thee are in the first and second heavens. And in the third heaven, the sun passes through and gives light to the world. But wait, and thou shalt see the glory of Elohim. And while I was conversing with him, I saw the bird. And he appeared in front and grew less and less, and at length returned to his full size. And behind him I saw the shining sun, and the angels which draw it, and a crown upon its head, the sight of which were, we were not able to gaze upon, and behold. And as soon as the sun shone, the phoenix also stretched out his wings. But I, when I behold such great glory, was brought low with great fear, and I fled and hid in the wings of the angel. And the angel said to me, Fear not, Baruch, but wait, and thou shalt also see their setting. Baruch apparently has the same questions as many of us. Where does the sun begin and end its labors? His inquiry seems to go unanswered, un unanswered for us at any rate. In another moment, Baruch is taken to the west. But where is the west? We are not directly told. What I want you to notice, though, is the sun's circuit through the third heaven. I am of the opinion that the sun, 
at least from our perspective, is something like a portal of light which corresponds to the sun making the laps around Gehenna and Paradise. I'll show you what I believe, uh, why I believe that in the following passage. So this comes from First Adam and Eve. Then Adam cried in deep affliction and beat his chest, and he got up and said to Hava, Where are you? And she said to him, Look, I am standing in this darkness. She's in a cave. He then said to her, Remember the bright nature in which we lived when we lived in the garden? Oh, Hava, remember the glory that rested on us in the garden? Oh, Hava, remember the trees that overshadowed us in the garden while we moved among them? Oh, Hava, remember that while we were in the garden, we, neither, we knew neither night nor day. Think of the tree of life from below which flowed the water, and that shed luster over us. Remember, O Hava, the garden land and the brightness thereof. Think, O think of that garden in which was no darkness while we lived in it. See what I mean? Adam and Hava never experienced the darkness of night so long as they inhabited the third heaven. The sun may have been pulled on a circuit by angels, and Adam and Hava may very well may have watched it pass outside the garden walls, but darkness did not follow in its wake, probably because everything in paradise is glorified, gleaming with the very light which the sun advertises for us here on the earth. Further evidence from chapter 16 of the same book. After this, Adam and Hava continued to stand in the cave, praying and crying until the morning dawned on them. And when they saw the light return to them, they, retra they retra uh, retrained from fear and strengthened their hearts. Then Adam began to come out of the cave. And when he came to the mouth of it and stood and turned his face towards the east and saw the sunrise and glowing rays and felt the heat thereof on his body, he was afraid of it and thought in his heart that this flame came forth to plague him. He then cried and beat his chest. Then he fell on the ground on his face and made the request saying, O Adonai, plague me not, neither consume me, nor yet take away my life from the earth. For he thought the sun was Elohim. The sun was an immediate terror for Adam and Hava after they had fallen from their glorified state. Their bodies were no longer accustomed to nor re retrofitted for the radiance which once surrounded them. Continuing again with um, Third Baruch. And he took me and led me towards the west. And when the time of the setting came, I saw again the bird coming before it. And as soon as I lie, uh, as uh, lie came, I saw the angels. And they lifted the crown from its head. But the bird stood exhausted and with wings contracted. And beholding these things, I said to Ad, I said, Adonai, wherefore did they lift the crown from the head of the sun? And wherefore is that bird so exhausted? And the angel said to me, the crown of the sun, when it has run through the day, four angels take it and bear it up to heaven and renew it, because, because it and its rays have been defiled upon earth. Moreover, it is so renewed each day. And I said, and I, Baruch said, Adonai, and wherefore are its beams defiled upon earth? And um, the angel said to me, because it beholds the lawlessness and unrighteousness of men. And then you can see the rest. He, I'm just going to skip ahead for sake, sake of time, but the drunkenness, idolatries, you know, divinations, the things that get people thrown in the lake of fire. Here we see that the luminaries are directly affected by the transgressions of men. As logic has it, they should be. The worlds contained within the seven firmaments of heaven are undoubtedly obedient to Torah, the law of heaven. Or you might say they're set apart. But in their toils for humanity, they are endlessly defiled, having come in contact with the unholy and profane. You see, even the angels are exhausted in their service to Elohim. They are therefore in need of constant renewal. Their level of tolerance for sin speaks as to their own nature, whether they have stayed or drifted from their course. 
We are given an example of what this tolerance for the unholy and profane looks like as Baruch continues. Chapter 9. And they, having retired, the night also fell, and at the same time came the chariot of the moon, along with the stars. And I, Baruch, said... So it's interesting that the stars are there when the sun is there. You just can't see the stars. And I... Um, <clears throat> And that should tell us, too, that, that, you know, they're probably not shining while the sun is up. Anyways, and I, Baruch, said, Adonai, show me it also, I beseech of thee, how it goes forth, where it departs, and in what form it moves along. And the angel said, wait, and thou shalt see it also shortly. And on the morrow, I also saw it in the form of a woman, and sitting on a wheeled chariot. This is the moon. And there was before it oxen and lambs and the chariot, and multitude of angels in like manner. And I said, Adonai. What are the oxen and the lambs? And he said to me, they are also angels. If the sun is driven by a man in his chariot, then it would only make sense that the moon would too, by a feminine ruach, that is. I should probably point out that Luna is the Roman goddess of the full moon, with Selene being her Greek counterpart. Baruch doesn't give us a name. He simply seems content with the notion that the ancients appreciated the consciousness of nature better than we do today. Continuing third Baruch chapter nine, and again I ask, why is it that uh, why is it at one time increases, but at another time decreases? And he said to me, "Listen, O Baruch, this which thou seest had been written by Elohim, beautiful as no other. So the moon was beautiful as no other. And at the transgression of the first Adam, it was near to Samael. So she was near to Samael when he took the serpent as a garment, and it and she did not hide." herself but increased and elohim was angry with her and afflicted her and shortened her days and i said and how does it not also shine always but only in the night and the angel said listen as in the presence of a king the courtiers cannot speak freely so the moon and the stars cannot shine in the presence of the sun for the stars are always suspended but they are screened by the sun and the moon although it is uninjured is consumed by the heat of the sun this is the third passage in scripture that I have yet to find, um, which speaks of the moon's transgression. As a witness to Samael uh, possessing the serpent, she did not feel defiled, much less exhausted of strength. No, she puffed herself up, and Elohim was angry with her for it. Afterwards, the beauty of the moon diminished, and her days were shortened into the cycle we observe today. By the way, just a side note, everybody, this is one of the reasons um, that I do not hold to the uh, so, uh, solar lunar Sabbath. I believe that the, the moon uh, shortened and decreased its days after sin. Uh, it, was not, it was just a full moon all the time during the, um, the creation week. The Aramaic Targum essentially tells us the same thing. And Yahuwah made two great luminaries, and they were equal in glory, twenty and one years, less six hundred and two and seventy parts of an hour. And afterwards, the moon recited against the sun a false report, and she was diminished. And the sun was appointed to be the greater light to rule the day, and the moon to be the inferior light to rule the night and the stars. Genesis one sixteen Targum. Apparently, the moon thought to involve the sun in whatever went down on the day of Adam and Hava's transgression. That leads me to think Hasatan entered paradise. Now, pay attention to this, guys, if you guys have drifted off and you're to sleep or whatever. That leads me to think Hasatan entered paradise during the 10th or 11th hour of the night, 
while the cherub were out giving praises, or the seraphim were flapping their wings. The sun hadn't arrived yet. We are not told what this false report was, but it was likely a fib intended to save her own skin. Kepha denying Yahusha with the sound of the cock may be another mirror to this story. Adam and Haver were denying Elohim while down upon the earth the roosters were crowing. Further clues can be found in the Gospel of Bartholomew. Uh, Bartholomew 4.4 Kepha saith again, he's speaking to Miriam, the mother of Yahusha, O tabernacle that are spread abroad, uh, Miriam saith, Thou art the image of Adam. Was not he first formed and then Hava? Look upon the sun, that according to the likeness of Adam it is bright, and upon the moon, that because of the transgression of Hava it is full of clay. For Elohim did place Adam in the east and Hava in the west, and appointed the lights that the sun should shine on earth unto Adam in the east in his fiery chariots. And the moon in the west should give light unto Hava with a countenance like milk. And she defiled the commandment of Adonai. Therefore was the moon stained with clay, and her light is not bright. Thou therefore, since thou art the likeness of Adam, ought to ask him, but in me was he contained that I might recover the strength of the female. The moon didn't simply diminish in light because of her willing transgression. Even her beauty abated. You see, the moon was defiled and okay with it. What is particularly fascinating here is that the moon seemed to directly correspond with Hava. When Hava sinned, then so did the moon. It's passages like this that makes me wonder if, as representative priests of humanity, Adam and Hava only came together in the garden when the sun and the moon united on their circuit, which would be, you know, one day a month. If so, then Hasatan's heist was cleverly timed. He needed to apprehend Hava at an hour when the angels were gone and the moon was directly overhead, but also when the sun had nearly caught up because he needed Adam to sin too. With that thought, I'm going to take a break from our tour day paradise and completely remove myself from this microphone. If I feel slightly defeated in the delivery, it's because there is still so much information to accumulate and process. New Jerusalem was snubbed for lack of time, and Gehenna was sparingly commented upon. We have barely even begun our investigation. His story is weird and fantastically strange, and I like it that way. We live in a spiritual realm which is completely incoherent and off par with the post-Newtonian rationale, science and all that. The truth is offensive to any willing participant in the Cain-sponsored narrative, which just so happens to be nearly everyone inhabiting your local neighborhood of make-believe, as well as the material girl. I had started out warning you that scripture has been tampered with, especially in their translations from one language to another, and so we must dig through this matter with caution. An entire book would be, uh, would be needed to reference every scriptural reference to the third heaven. I have chosen only a few, specifically targeting the books which very few have read. Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yasharel, has offered a scrumptious taste of reality, but only for those diligent enough to, uh, to serve him and seek it. And for lack of better words, me like. I hope you do too. All right, guys. Uh, thank you for sticking in there with me. It looks like we've uh, most of you are still here, and that was took a lot longer than I expected. Um, went twenty minutes over, but 
it is what it is. Hopefully you guys learned something new tonight. I was particularly really uh, captivated myself with the whole rooster uh, narrative and the sun and the moon a narrative and how they play out with Adam and Eve and the moon uh, transgression with Eve and all that. So I have been talking for the last hour and a half. Um, you guys uh, open up the mics and let me know your thoughts. I really <laughs> like the sun and the moon piece that you, you tied it in uh, deeper than our last conversations. We've, we've been talking about that. So I thought, I thought you did a great job with that. And seeing how the moon's transgression was somewhat coinciding with Hava and Adom, so that was that was really good, really insightful there. And it's okay if people thought, you know, I mean, you, you know, there, there's some stuff in here. There was some subject matter in here. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if this is pagan or not. You know, and that's um, well, yeah. That's where we find a lot of these these pagan uh, mythological folklore type of uh, information. There's truth in it, and uh, that's 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 the challenge that we have is walking in, in discernment and uh, trying to flesh these things out, so to speak. In what what is or was being shown to us in history whether there is truth in it and what kind of truth that is in it. So it's, it's yeah, it, it, it's something that we have to be careful of instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater is what is it that we have here and what is it that we can actually use? So I agree. It took me a while thinking about this, but I actually really like the idea of the sun and the moon uh, being like driven by these chariots by a man and a woman, and you know the Yeshayahu would talk about the the person enthroned in each heaven that was like ruler lord of that of that whole realm of heaven, and he would have this crown. But then you see that the 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 driver of the sun and the moon also uh, have crowns. You know they're like a king and a queen, and um, and so. Yeah, I mean, it, the thing is with all these 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 mystery religions, and that's where Enoch really explains it to me that the Watchers literally came down and gave them the mysteries of heaven, but they corrupted everything, and so that's what we see like all over the you know the the world with these these mystery religions that all have these similarities, but they're they have no love for the Most High. They're all corrupted in that sense. Yeah, and how hard is it to believe that a we don't we we don't see in the spiritual realm, we only see in this physical realm. So how hard would it be to to note that the sun and the moon are actually being pulled by a, a chariot in the spiritual realm? I mean, you know, I it, it could be very well possible. Yeah. Well, and I I think um, I really stand on the fact that, you know, the moon cannot be landed upon, and obviously not the sun either, but I almost kind of see them as like, like portals, like what he's describing up there in the third heaven, that when we see the sun and the moon, we're not actually, I don't, 
there's two options. Either we're looking up to the third heaven or we're not. And I, I say we're not. That the, the literally we can't see past the firmament and going into the first heaven. And so we see in all these different layers that it's, again, it's like there's this cause and effect that they're doing things in these different layers that is affecting things on the earth. And so, you know, storehouses and factories and prisons and all sorts of things. And so <clears throat> I, I just see that, like, what, whatever they're doing up there in the third heaven, the sun and the moon, uh, the spirits behind them, that, like, we see the reflectors down here. We see the, 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 the representation, I guess, of the spiritual beings. Yeah, as, as you read, as above and so below, yeah. Could you give us a little background on Baruch? Yes, I'm chewing on a uh, saltine uh, cracker here, but um, here, let me get a drink of water. So Baruch, um, first and second Baruch are phenomenal books. I highly recommend if you get up if you get the Sefer, uh, Doctor Pigeon has included first and second Baruch in the Bible, which is so f I, I just love it. I love that I open my Bible and they're in there. And Baruch was friends with uh, Jeremiah, and they're writing their books at the same time. And they were they were actually left behind when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem. And Baruch was the, uh, he was a temple priest. And for whatever reason, he wasn't carted off to Babylon. And um, when you're reading, Baruch actually, he did ascend to heaven uh, like this, but he actually was taken to heaven permanently, like Elijah and Enoch and others. And it's either in first or second Baruch. And he's, he's um, getting ready to ascend. And all the people that are really upset. Because they say, when you leave, there will be no more Torah. And that's a really interesting thought, because what they're saying is that Baruch had memorized Torah. He knew it up and down. Um, and by this point, there was no Torah left. You have to recall that it was Ezra who, basically, every single source text we have comes post-Babylonian captivity, uh, captivity through Ezra. And, you know, he basically supernaturally transferred, he and some people with him wrote all these texts. And this is why I kind of always laugh when they say like, oh, like, you know, the book of Enoch can't be older than like the third or fourth century, you know, BC. And it's like, well, you know, because of like the place names and stuff I'm like, well, okay, well, that's when it was written. Technically, it really was. They make targums, all of them. They were all written at that time. And, um. And so, you know, he, I, I believe that Ezra was the first one to, he no longer was uh, writing the Bible in Paleo-Hebrew. He went to the, 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 like the Babylonian script at that point, and it was all part of Yah's divine plan. Um, anyways, yeah, but that's, that was Baruch and Jeremiah were there at the same time to weep Jerusalem being destroyed when the Babylonians carted everybody off. So third Baruch is also called the Apocalypse of Baruch. Oh, he might have been uh, wrote it, he might have been the scribe of Jeremiah. Um, for some reason, I was reading somewhere that he was he was a temple priest. I could be wrong on that, um, but um, but yeah, they, they were definitely Jeremiah and, and and Baruch were you know were buds.
So, Rhoda, if if he was the scribe of Jeremiah, would you say that he technically wrote the pen, uh, wrote the on parchment, the um, uh, like Lamentations and um, and the the Book of Jeremiah? Yes. Mm -hmm. Nice. Anybody else? Well, it is eleven thirty, and as always, I you know thank Josh for recording this, and um, I will cl officially close shop for anybody who does want to go home. Uh, go home, uh, you know, dive into the sheets, put a head on a pillow, turn out the lights. I'll be on here talking for a little bit longer, but uh, we'll just call this officially closed, and you guys can start talking. I really do appreciate a lot of you saying you enjoyed it because I never know what's going to be a hit or miss with people. Um, so it's nice that people enjoyed this. And you didn't have to go running anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was, it was, that was an answer. So just to uh, tell everybody that, um, I had, from the time I woke up this morning, I had shooting diarrhea. And um, it, it, this was the worst I've ever experienced in my life. It was still going until I was on 20 minutes before I went on. And like all day. And I'm like, I'm just guzzling water, trying not to die of dehydration. And there was like no end to it. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting, I'm not trying to be graphic, but I'm sitting on the toilet and I, it's, it's like 8.30 or 8.40 or whatever. And I'm just like, I'm praying, I'm praying to y'all. I'm like, okay, this is it. This is the, going to zero hour. I got a presentation to give. Should I cancel or can you like just end this right now? And I came in here and I sat down and it was the first time that I was able to sit for two and a half. It's been three hours now. And it's, uh. It's been a dry country over here. So that is y'all answering my prayer because it was terrible all day. Crazy yeah. Out. Yeah. That's why I, I told people when they first came in, I think before you got here, Rob, I'm like, all right, guys, here's the instructions. If I have to say I've, I'm getting up, I'm going to be back in five minutes. Here's what's happening. Just... <laughs> Just, just hang in there and uh, explain to the others, and I'll be back and I'll continue. Right, you know, pick up where I left off. Yeah, I was wondering why you said that. I didn't hear the beginning. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Noel. This is uh, very insightful, and uh, look forward to some future material on this. That part about Eve making an oath to Hasatan. That she'd give it to um, Adam. Ooh, heavy. I know that really. That that was really sad to, to see because she had she had to do she had to do it. Well, yeah, and it's like and like Satan, he's strutting in there, and he's like, you know, I'm not I'm not going to show you the tree after all. Like like and and it's like like it's like total reverse psychology. And she's like, really? Oh, like she's all disappointed now. And yeah, that was really, uh, that was tragic. And it, it makes sense why she gave it to him. Like she had to, 
she made an oath of her word um, on Yah's throne. And um, and the scene after that I didn't read. Uh, Rob, I think you've probably read that text. But it gets haunting after that. Like, as soon as Adam and Eve, they, partic- they participate in what they do with Satan, they hear uh, these trumpets blasting. And they can hear over the wall, over paradise, all the angels assembling. And they know something's about to go down. And then Yahuwah rides in on a chariot. And as he's riding in, the angels set up a throne there before the uh, tree of life, um, or it might have been before the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he sits in the throne and he judges them. And I just find that whole scene so haunting. In fact, some of the angels start to take the sides of Adam and Eve, and they don't want them expelled. And and, and the Most High, he looks at him and he's like, and he kind of insinuates, like, you want to be, you know, go where they're going because you can go there too. Uh, there was almost like a mutiny over it. Yeah, they felt bad. Yeah. I'm so glad, Noel, <clears throat> excuse me, my, my voice is very froggy tonight. I'm so glad that you have gone over this material. I was talking to Crazy, Crazy Chicken Boy today about the Book of Enoch, and he was asking if I had read it, and I said, I've read it two or three times, but I don't really remember much about it because it, 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 it my brain literally couldn't absorb it. It was so fantastical that I couldn't make heads or tails of it. But hearing you go through it and explain some of it, now I've got a burning desire to go again because now, I feel like my I might understand it at this point a little bit. Well, now what I read through was Second Enoch, uh, the, the more controversial one. And the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that there are passages in Second Enoch, which from my perspective, that I've been totally tampered with. And there's been a few different parties have gone their hand on it uh with first enoch i'm convinced that it's probably like four or five different books that they uh that enoch was said to write many books and um i think there were at least four or five there that were stitched together at a later time similarly to how like the proverbs or the psalms would have been put together you know like obviously they had all those had to be collected at a different time and um and then the last book, which is really fascinating, I don't think, um, I don't, I don't know that Enoch wrote it. It's called like it's a section from the Lost Book of Noah, and there's another section at the end of Second Enoch that I also believe comes from that same Lost Book of Noah. And for whatever reason, these small sections—I mean, the Lost Book of Noah looks like a fascinating read—but for whatever reason, these two sections survived, and they ended up in these books. I don't know why. Well, didn't you also say at some point that parts of it are out of order, or at least a section is out of order? I seem to remember a long time ago, a few months back, you saying something about that. Yeah, I I think that probably a lot of Enoch is out of order. Now, what I had mentioned was that, it depending on the translation, because the book of Enoch can be a little confusing when you're cross-referencing, because depending on the translator, they will actually move the chapters around and it gets really confusing. And then when you go over the the 10 week prophecy, you got weeks one through seven, some translators will put eight, nine and 10 right afterwards. And others, they will, they will move it to like three chapters earlier. Uh, So yeah, it can get confusing. And I I personally believe that most of Enoch anyways is uh, 
out of order and it was just how it's kind of like again like the psalms like was psalm one the first psalm that david ever wrote no you know it just it for whatever reason they put it in that same thing with the proverbs right like they just took all these different proverbs probably like fortune cookies and you know they were written down on parchment or whatever i don't know what it looked like and they piece it together in a book and so i kind of think enoch is something similar to that that's just that's just great that, yeah, yeah i see how they stitched it together with uh different people speaking obviously uh, the thing that I was talking to her about, though, was uh, the cows and the sheep. I thought that was really interesting to see how they took up arms and were, you know, devouring each other. And I don't know. It's just kind of weird. Oh, yeah. In the, the parable section. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. It's like, uh, what, Enoch 80? Yeah. 85. Or like ninety something, but yeah, <laughs> I don't know if it's like uh, literal. You know, I'm kind of thinking maybe it's not, but it's, so it, it's so, definitely interesting. So this is a connection between Enoch and Yahusha, I believe. Um, I think that you know Enoch's spoken a lot of parables. And he has a whole book of parables, obviously. One of the books in First Enoch. And, and Yahushua spoke in parables. And something that I think they both had in common was that they were the order of Meshelzedek. And I, I get this feeling like the order of Meshelzedek, they spoke in parables. I'm like, again, I can't prove that, but um, I think that, you know, that's something I've connected. I think the reason for that may be because Parables are useful for teaching students, aren't they? Yeah, well, I think the thing about parables is that uh, I think the I think the reason Yahusha spoke in parables specifically is that scripture had become so convoluted by that time by uh, the Talmudic traditions that you couldn't he had I think he had to teach it in such a way, teach the truth of the kingdom in such a way that people could could grasp it outside of what had been wrangled from them in scripture if that makes any sense um because i think it had been so con convoluted i mean uh twisted and mangled by that time uh who was it that asked uh oh my thought on metatron so you know the thing is is that yeah i quoted from that where it talked about metatron the the aramaic targum says he became metatron and the problem with Metatron, it's another thing where there's so much literature out there. Like you get into like Kabbalah, you get into, you know, it's like when people hear me say Metatron, they're like, oh, Noel's a Kabbalist now. It's like, no, I'm not. It's just like the thing is, is that in, anyone who ascended to heaven, they're going to become an angel. They're going to become a divine being like you have to. And so I take it that that was just his um his his heavenly name at that time i think that each of us i mean i i don't suspect that i'm going to be in assuming i make it to paradise new jerusalem that i'm going to be noel i don't think i'm going to be a pagan name i mean noel's a pagan name i think i'm gonna have a new name i don't think it's gonna be metatron but i just i i don't i don't see a really big deal with that that's by my thought on metatron 
Oh yeah, Nolatron. <laughs> what yeah, was that? That Enoch. Enoch's name is Metatron. Is that what? Yeah. Referring to. Yeah, according to the uh, Genesis Aramaic Targum, uh, he becomes a Metatron. It mentions Metatron a couple times in the Targum. And then, in, like, I, I quoted from Legend of the Jews, which says he became Metatron. And uh, there's a few others. And, you know, it, it's a controversial thing because you bring that up and all of a sudden you, you start getting really, you know, Talmudic or, you know, Kabbalah, whatever, in those territories. And I, I, I don't know. I just don't have a I don't have a problem with it because I know he ascended and he became like the angels. So it's like call him whatever you want. It just seems like the name is Metatron. What's well, interesting? I've heard metaphor Metatron be referred to as the voice of God. Um, yeah, well, that that could see that's the thing when you get into the Metatron territory, right? Like, I yeah, I I don't I would have to see hard evidence on that in in. Um, any kind of uh, scriptural text. However, I do think that many of the angels who, um, the messengers who visit, who visit the earth to this day and also in biblical times, uh, were those who ascended up to the city of Enoch or New Jerusalem and that they come down to serve us. Uh, that's what the writings of Abraham says, that they were taken up before the flood in order to serve humanity. So, um, I, I think that Enoch does serve us to this day, and um, Elijah and anybody else that was taken up. So, so the Doctor Pigeon book. Were you referring to um, the Sefer, the Millennium Edition? Oh, I don't know. I don't know what what edition I have. I just have a big, thick edition that has like 20-something added books to it. Yeah, there's four different editions now, I believe. I think the third one was the Millennium Edition. Well, what, what's, the, what's the difference in the editions? Uh, just the thickness of the paper. Um, I don't know. They, put, they did some edits, I think. You can go read it. And they, they say what the different uh, editions have in them. Okay. I do think he ha he has other books as well um, that are like not he doesn't throw in canon, but he has a couple other sephers. One is has first and second Adam and Eve, and um, a few others. I'd like to get those and read them. Maybe the Millennium Edition is yeah, that's the newest one, the fourth. I guess it is. Hey, Noah. Yes. Hi. How are you doing? <laughs> very good. Uh, very good read <laughs> over there. I really enjoyed it. It's just I was just taking notes. I joined a little bit later uh, because it's uh, late hours here. And um, yeah, I just just wanted to mention. Um, it just shows from uh, from the <clears throat> from the original scene basically that. Um, the importance of even keeping the Sabbath, uh, because most properly, what what I think, I mean, you might know better, but uh, what I think is that the angels they also have their uh, their rest from um, their rest from their duties, and I think <clears throat> maybe there is a purpose even for the Sabbath that needs to be kept, and it's all not only that we need to keep the Sabbath because. 
uh, yeah, rested on the seventh day, but also it's because um, the angels also rest. And if if the children of Yah they have angels watching over them, then and you do a work on the Sabbath and you do things, then if an accident happens or maybe you don't have the divine protection from the angels if you do the work. So I think th there could be a, I mean, reading all of these things that, uh, um, hearing all of the things that you read just now, it's just like, it's like a big piece of a puzzle coming together, uh, hearing that, you know, even the angels, they get tired and they need their rest. So maybe there's some sort of meaning, even deeper meaning, more practical meaning when you when you think about the the Sabbath rest, uh, especially when even when uh, the original scene happened. Actually, the original scene happened during the time where the angels they were praising Yah. So it kind of shows that you know, if for example something happened, imagine being in a city where nothing works. Let's say on Sunday or Saturday. And an accident happens. Who's going to watch over you? <laughs> Imagine that. This this is how I think about it. What do you think? I think you're I think you're spot on. And so I do believe we have guardian angels. Or I you know again guardian angels like has thoughts attached to it that may or may not be true. But we have angels surrounding us. And I think it's the so I think it, you're absolutely true about about resting on Sabbath as a way because Elohim rests and also the angels rest and we're giving them a rest. You know, we don't want to be that guy where the, like our guardian angels, like, Oh my, you know, my, the ox fell in the ditch again. And I got to go, you know, get him out of this on my day of rest, you know? Um, so there's, there's a gospel. I'm trying to think, is it the gospel of Philip? I can't remember what it's called now. And I read it and it's, it's really interesting. And it talks about how we all do have guardian angels. And it straight out says that like, a lot of the angels think the people that have to guard really suck. Like they can't stand it. Like they can't tolerate, like they're assigned people and they can't tolerate those people. And they, and they basically like on the day they died, they're like, look, you gave me a really hard time and you know, you're not going to like the consequences. Um, and so uh, uh, the reversal of that is if, if anyone remembers in here, when we went through the Testament of Job and on his deathbed, he asked his daughters to play beautiful music to bless the angels that are coming to take him away. And I think that's a really neat thought because we don't really think about that. Like we, when we play music, you know, and we're like blasting it in the car or whatever, or at home, are we thinking about, you know, we're blessing the, the spiritual realm around us too, right? Hopefully not inviting demons into our house because that happens. But just the the righteous, the set apart that you know they have to listen to that too. And if we want them in our lives, are we are we polluting them, you know, with our trash? And that's something to think about. So yeah, going back to your Sabbath, the Sabbath day thing, that's spot on. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's very interesting how even uh, that Yah has a way to actually be able to bless um, any divine beings that they actually uh, they have um, repented in a way. For example, uh, Adam and Eve, um, they sinned, uh, but they regretted uh, about their sin, they repented, and Yah is, has led them to their salvation. And in a sense, I see the same thing even with the moon. Even though the moon, I think, it sinned, 
eventually, I think uh, Yah found a purpose for the moon. So we will be able to keep the Sabbaths and also, you know, to help us at least uh, to count uh, to count the days and the festivities and all the um, the celebrations that we that we do doing the, you know, as we keep the Torah. Uh, so I think I think um, in the, even in the sin of uh, its children or even the divine beings or the heavenly luminaries, Yah kind of finds a way to take us through a salvation plan of sorts. For example, the moon was uh, was shining as the sun before, but when it sinned, it said, okay, now you sin. The way for you to redeem yourself is basically to keep um, to keep a clock of diminishing and increasing light, which is the waxing and the waning, and also uh, so the people can actually uh, keep um, the days, counting of the days or the months, years, etc. Yeah, well, the yeah, and so the my my current thought is that the feast days. The, the seven feast days of Yah were... Now, Sabbath was always instituted, and Sabbath is a day of rest. It's a day... Like, we don't bring sacrifices on Sabbath. We rest. It, that's always been the way it's been intended to be. The seven feast days, and I want to make clear that they are they 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 have not been done away with. We still have the seven feast days. But my my thought is that they were instituted after sin. And what do we see on the feast days? They're, you know, atonement for our sins and all sorts of things. Uh, you know, a Passover lamb. Like we wouldn't have had to have a Passover lamb if there was no sin. So that that that's another thing with the moon. That the moon was now the moon wasn't like a sun. It was it was milky white. It was a like a silverish feminine glow to the 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 sun's masculine light. Uh, it it you know it it radiated like Eve, who was you know milky white kind of silverish and um so that you know became uglified like the clay mire we see in that kind of stuff and maybe even scarred up i don't even know but um yeah so that's that's what i pointed out in here i i i know that, that that's a raging debate with the 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 lunar solar sabbath but for me that's kind of a like a check in the box for team seventh day sabbath that that it appears like i've got three at least three different uh, cross-reference scriptures now that that say that the the moon only diminished in light because of sin, and the day is shortened because of sin. After what Eve did, yes, and like you said, when it was created, it was full, guys. He wouldn't. <laughs> it was whole. It wasn't diminished yet, or diminishing. Yeah, very true. Very true. Um, it actually shows that even the angels, they sin in their nature, and it's very interesting that uh, how Yah actually made the made the humans, the people, uh, for uh, for priests, as if to uh, bring the balance, maybe, or I mean, I mean, e even even Adam, which was a priest, uh, he sinned, which shows that how holy is actually Yah. It's very interesting. What did you guys think about the? I mean, I thought I thought this would be the thing that people would want to talk about was the the tree of knowledge of good and evil being grapes uh, or even fermented grapes that uh, that you know Noah 
basically grew into all the grapes that we have today and you know was it's the same wine that was prophesied for Yehusha with the new covenant what do you guys what are your thoughts on that when yeah. I, when i heard about that uh no uh, when i heard uh, about that Noel, uh, do you know what remind me in the book of adam and eve <clears throat> at some point i think uh satan throws a big rock uh, on top of uh, um, of on top of Eve of Adam and Eve, I think, or was it only Eve? And and Yah makes the rock into uh, a covering as a house. I think, I, I I think I read it some time ago. I, I cannot remember the 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 verses exactly, but it just shows that something that <clears throat> something that has been deemed that Satan wants to corrupt it. Yah finds a way uh, to actually use it for good. Uh, for example, he threw the rock, it made the rock into uh, some sort of covering. Uh, he used the grape for bad to actually, um, to actually um, make, make Eve maybe drunk or something. But the grape was used for good and salvation in the, in the, in the Passover dinner of uh, Yeshua with his uh, with his uh, students, this, this this is what came to my mind. Good, Barbara, you gonna say something? Uh, yeah, regarding the the grapes being um, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, I remember we we were reading that and describe it was being described, and I cannot remember what book. But it was definitely describing the type of um, uh, like a, a fruit, like a grape, uh, literally uh, coming forth from it. And it's so interesting to see so many of the references in the scriptures with grapes. I mean, the grapes of wrath. I mean, all all of these uh, parts of it. And, and if you take the if you take the the mental note of it's bad or evil. Then you have to ignore all of the parts where it talks about it in a in a good manner, and that's why I like the discussion where we can see that it, it, it's used for both good and bad, and Yah can use these things uh, uh, in in both manners. It's just how it's being used, and that goes back to man or ma mankind that each of us have choices of how we want to be, how we want to uh, act and live out our lives. We can be good fruit or we can be bad fruit. So I, I, I enjoyed it. You can be a good grape or a squash grape, yeah. Or a raisin. <laughs> yeah, raisin. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, Rob. I was just going to say the grapes of wrath. That's what it reminded me of as well. Yeah, and we see the references about the uh, the wine, the great wine press, and it referencing the the blood, the the blood of the uh, grapes, and so forth. So you see a lot of that tie-ins too. I just thought it was funny in that same passage passage in Third Baruch that it said straight out that Michael planted the uh, the apple tree. And so everyone, everyone always. Gabriel. Oh, was it Gabriel? So everyone, so everyone always depicts, you know, Adam and Eve eating an apple, 
and it's like, no, that's the wrong tree. <laughs> <laughs>